comics, movies, music, video games, technology, Blu-ray, television. This is the HHW LOD Podcast Network. From remote galaxies are the most sinister villains of all time. The Legion of Dudes. Dude. His dudeness, duder, El Duderino. Dude, dude. Dedicated to a single objective the conquest of the universe. Take your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. It's the Legion of Dudes podcast. Help, the human's about to escape. Get your paws off me, you dirty ape. He can talk. 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 I can sing. Oh, help me, Dr. Sayus. Dr. Sayus, Dr. Sayus. Dr. Sayus, Dr. Sayus. Dr. Sayus, Dr. Sayus. Oh, Dr. Sayus. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. What's wrong with me? I think you're crazy. On a second opinion. You're also lazy. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Oh, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Can I play the piano anymore? Of course you can. Well, I couldn't before. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 144 of the Legion of Dudes podcast. This is Jordan from Jersey, and I'm joined tonight by Johnny M. and Russell Latham. How are you guys doing tonight? Very well. Tired. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Happy me Memorial too. Day weekend. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, thanks to uh, all of our veterans around the world. I uh, just just last night, my sister mentioned that uh, 144 was her favorite number. So shout out to my sister Grace. We're doing uh, this show <laughs> just for you. Cool. So, uh, Casey Kasem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, next, I'll be doing Scooby Doo impersonations. Yeah, and then we have to like uh, dedicate something to a dead dog or <laughs> Casey yeah. Kasem. There's a pool for you. Uh, but Russ, I believe you have our Form for Geeks podcast of the month for June, don't you? Wait a minute. Can I go I back do. to Casey Kasem for one second? <laughs> <laughs> you did can you stay guys, on Casey Kasem as long as you want, which is a weird guys, sentence I never thought I'd say. <laughs> did you ever hear the blooper? Of him yes. going ballistic. Yes, yeah, it's yes. fantastic. Yeah, and it's exactly what I was just kind of referring to. Like, yeah. he had a read uh, dedication to somebody's pet who died, and then the next read was like something cheerful, and he's like, I can't do this. Somebody's freaking it, bleeping him out, and everything. And yeah. uh, anybody, Google it if you don't know what we're talking about. But yeah, we're not well, here to talk about Casey Kasem. Yes, we're not here to talk about Casey Kasem. Or dead dogs. But we are here to talk about. The Nerd Herd Podcast, which is the June Forum for Geeks Podcast of the Month. And you can get it on iTunes or at www.nerdherdonline.com. And that's herd, H-E-A-R-D, not H-E-R-D. And it's, it's with Rich and uh, his buddy Kenneth. And um, so the Nerd Herd Podcast episodes focused on nerd and geek culture. We discuss comics, movies, television, video games, and anything else nerdy. The Nerd Herd Podcast is host, hosted by Richard Chubtoads Sheldon and Kenneth E. Hayes. We will also feature regular in-studio guests such as John Danger Ace Davis and Rachel Gasparak, who are also nerds we know. So again, it's, it's kind of um, 
just a bunch of guys that are all in this, you know, get together in the same room and just talk about a bunch of geeky, geeky stuff. They're a fairly new podcast. I think they're up to issue 14 or 15 at this point. And um, Richard Chubtoad has been uh, a listener of our show for a while. He, you know, he's been posting on the boards. I've actually met both of these guys in person. They were both uh, at Dallas Con last week or two weeks ago, as you listened to this. And uh, I've met Richard at, at pretty much all the Dallas shows. Uh, and I, I think at Austin Con, too, he was at. So we've, uh, we've, Shared dinner a few times. Great guys. Um, I enjoy talking to them and and throwing stuff around. So definitely check them out at like I said, Nerd Herd Online. That's N E R D H E R D O N L I N E dot com. Yeah, I've known Rich for a little over a year now. He's a cool dude. He actually guest hosted on my uh, comic video reviews back when I was doing them uh, one time. That was pretty cool. But yeah, I, I got him into the whole H H W L O D thing, and now he's podcasting himself. So it's kind of awesome. So yeah. yeah, go check them out. Go and find a great out those name. Heard. Great name. We always have to try to think of names for things like our forums and different spinoff shows and different ideas. And, and that and it's not easy, and that's a cool one. We should outsource it to them next time. Maybe we will. You guys want to check out some voicemails that we've been uh, holding on to? Please do. There's nothing I'd like better. We have one here from Mr. Dane Grannon. Uh, this probably should have been played a little bit earlier than it is, but better late than never. Uh, it's regarding our Thor talk for our Thor movie show uh, from earlier in the month. Hello, this, I'm Dane Grannon, and I'm just listening to LOD141. And I heard that you guys do not know who Eric Stoltz is. Around episode, issue 300 of Thor in probably 1979, maybe 80. Uh, Eric Stoltz temporarily gained the powers of Thor and could wield the hammer. He walked through uh, using the belt of strength and some iron gauntlets, which I don't remember what they were called. He was able to achieve the powers of Thor, and he picked up the hammer. And I believe that's probably why he's being tied in. Well, I hope you guys play this, and as I said once again, this is Dane Grannon, and I'll talk to you later. Did he say the character's last name was Stoltz? It sounded like he said Eric Stoltz. <laughs> like I, the guy who was almost yeah. Marty McFly? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I looked it up, and it's, it's Eric Selvig, so I just misheard what he said. Um, but so, it's interesting that he would be able to pick up Thor's hammer. He seems... It, it, seems to me that if they were to go that route in the movies that he's kind of old to be doing that and that's not a, a knock against the character but i don't see the actor stellan skarsgård doing any action stuff at, at his age maybe he could you know he's not you know he's not 70 but it's probably more of a nod and tying in the you know just using the name than it well, the only reason why i think it could be more than that is just because spoilers for thor he does show up after the credits and I believe he's going to be in Avengers. So they're going to use him more. Right. Yeah, I, I could see that. But uh, So thank you, Dane, for, for letting us know about that. That's very cool. Here's one uh, quick one. Another quick voicemail. Hey, dude. This is Mahat from the Sixes Hideout calling to say what's up. Uh, just got finished listening to your uh, Maybe Yes episode, and I enjoyed it. It was short to me, but, uh, you know, can't get enough of you guys. 
All right. Well, take care. Just wanted to give you a shout out and let you know I appreciated what you did, and uh, can't wait to listen to the Smallville episode. So the maybe yes show was short. Had to be. Yeah, it was. It it came in like right at one thirty, maybe even a little less than one thirty. Short for us, I guess. I'm I'm sure whoever edited it didn't think it was short. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Mahat. We will uh, we will be lengthier. Hopefully, Uh, that's what she said. Yeah, I'm looking. Yeah, <laughs> I'm looking forward to New York because because um, those guys should all be there. The whole Defixers crew and Daryl and hopefully Lori makes it out from California. So it'll be cool to to be able to um, to meet up with those guys. I know I I met them all at Super Show, not not this past one, but the one before, and they're all just really cool guys to to sit and talk to for a little bit. Yeah, yeah, we uh, I met most of them at last New York Comic Con, and uh, they are a lot of fun. Uh, Daryl was my partner at the Nikita panel. As we tried to ogle Maggie Q from several rows back, but uh, it was awesome. Which is coming back next season. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that. It's a it's a good underrated show. It's a nice action show that's well choreographed, which really shouldn't be too surprising with Maggie Q because she can fight. I mean, uh, she can. So that's that's great. And it also has nice mysteries and, and, and a good story. It's being written well. It was really a, a nice little sleeper hit. Isn't that like the only show that uh, CW brought back from last season? I think so. Oh, that and Vampire Diaries. Uh, was that new? I thought that was already on its second season. Oh, you might be right. Yeah, yeah. I think you are right, Jordan. I think that's the only premiere that, that, that is coming back. Yeah. Yeah, so good on it. So to go along with our regular sort of BS stuff, we were also lucky enough to talk to Mr. Daryl Gregory, who is a science fiction novelist, and he's writing comics for Boom currently. And uh, he writes the adaptations of Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep and the Dracula Company of Monsters book and uh, the Planet of the Apes, which we've been really excited about and it kind of... Uh, sparked us to seek out Mr. Gregory, and uh, we're going to talk to him in a little bit, and that should be a lot of fun. It's a book that um, we really enjoy, and all of us except Jordan enjoy the Apes franchise. So uh, I like the idea behind it. I'm just not a huge fan of the execution. You don't like the ape suits, basically. No, no. I mean, like, I, I like the idea, the, the whole idea behind the novel and the movies of you know, the whole twist ending and everything. I just find everything beyond that to be kind of just annoying and long spoken. <laughs> that's even a term. Have, have either of you guys read Pierre Boulle's original novel? I don't speak French. So no, well, no. I, I have not French. <laughs> well, no, I'm sure you could get a translation. <laughs> I was I just say, ignoring Jordan. I have not I, read I, it. I know the ending to it though. I, I know how they originally ended. And I thought that's actually even better than the movie. I'd have to say that, the movie ending is probably the biggest twist ending in movie history. Yeah, probably so. I mean... I can't think of anything off the top of my head that is that kind of, um, you know, the, the surprise. Only, I mean, the only thing that comes close, I, I guess, and if you want to talk... Maybe Citizen Kane, it, but it, but yeah, it was kind of a twist, but it was kind of like a, 
oh, okay, so that's what that was about. Um, and then the other one, maybe like The Sixth Sense, you know, where it was like, holy crap kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I was yeah. actually going to mention that, but I was afraid that I would be mocked because I was probably missing like another huge twist ending somewhere in between those 30 oh, years. But... The Crying Game, maybe? Yeah, I was just maybe The Crying Game, but, but uh, oof, yeah. So we'll talk uh, twist endings and apes and, and all sorts of stuff with Daryl Gregory in a little bit. But uh, what else is on our minds? Well, I've been to two cons in two weeks. You bastard. I know. I'm tired. I drove to Dallas last weekend, and I literally got back from Houston like an hour and a half ago. So I've been driving all over the state. But uh, And if, if you listen to the this week's Half Hour Wasted, you'll hear all the shenanigans and stuff going on from Dallas Con, which was it was a lot of fun. And you know, for me, most of the time, the con is, is half about the show itself and half about just hanging out with everybody. So it was really cool. Um, June Bob was was there. June Bob Kim, you know, good friend of the show, and you know, just just a great guy to hang out with. And of course, Brad Frank, Bill, um, Richard, and Kenneth, like we mentioned, a couple friends of uh, and uh, June Bob's made it up. Sean and, and and another another guy named Ken, and uh, we just we you know all went to dinner. Had uh, Dennis Poo and um, Trevor Trevor Pearson, um, some guys you know Austin guys that I I know we have lunch every so often. And uh, so it was just really fun just hanging out with those guys. We got our uh, – if you haven't seen the um, either Brad's uh, Twitter or Facebook, we got our picture taken with uh, – or as Brad would say, our, pic- our picture made with, um, with Leonard Nimoy, which was a pretty surreal experience because uh, normally when you think of photo op, you kind of think of – you get in a room, you know, you shake hands, you say hello, how's it going, you know, great fan of your work, blah, blah, blah. Okay, let's, let's all turn and smile for the camera, click, and then and move on. And this was like an assembly line. It was very – I felt very strange because Leonard Nimoy literally is sitting on a stool and has like this, this look on his face. He's kind of he's mostly smiling, doesn't say a word. The guy taking the picture just like – Everybody huddle in. One, two, three. Click. Okay, move on. And next group comes in, and it's just like, it's like sausage going through there. And uh, so it, it was just really bizarre. And then it, it's funny because Brad and I went the next day to to pick up you know, the prince made of the pictures, and you're looking through, and he literally has like the same expression on his face in almost every picture. It's really kind of funny. Um, yeah, it's just it's just kind of a bizarre. It's 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 a a very impersonal. Um, that if that makes sense yeah yeah that's definitely um sounds like it could be a little awkward yeah yeah now the john ramita jr stuff was awesome i mean he just a really great guy i mean i it took you know stood in line for about an hour got it you know got his autograph and that was that was all lots of lots of good fun um and got a you know print got some stuff signed so that was that was really awesome um but overall the con was okay uh, not. It, it was kind of weird because in the new convention center, which is definitely better than the the old one, just because there's more room. But the panels were on different floors. Like you'd have to go like the third floor for some of the panel rooms, and it was just it was just really weird. So it was a little tougher to to kind of migrate around. So you know, I think they're still trying to kind of get their bearings straight with the new location as opposed to the old location. 
Um, so we'll see how it goes. As you know, they do these twice a year, so it'll be interesting to see. Um, I don't know that I'll be at the one in October because it's going to be real close to New York, and uh, I don't. I don't think I can get away with being gone, you know, two weekends in a row or really, really close together, especially because New York is going to be a, a big, you know, kind of a big trip. Um, so I'll be curious to see how that how that plays out. Um, but I was in Houston uh, Saturday and Sunday for Comic Palooza, and you know, as you listen to the past few shows we've had we've had uh, john simons on who is the you know main ringleader for the show and uh he put us in contact with chris roberson who he interviewed last week as a part of smallville and uh it was a really interesting show at, at george r brown the cool thing is they had the entire basically the entire third floor of or pretty close to the whole third floor of the george r brown convention center lots of room um, one of the things that's tough at cons, especially if you've been to like San Diego, um, I haven't been to New York, but just to hear from it, and then even even with the Dallas Con and, and Austin, it's really tough sometimes to just find a place to sit down and you know rest your feet and kind of get your bearings together and and stuff like that. And the place is so spacious, and the area they have is so big. There's tons of places that have tables and places to sit down and you know stretch your legs. So I really appreciated that um, you know because there's way more space than than what they had stuff going on. But kind of like John mentioned, and I missed it last year, so I don't have anything to compare it to from last year. But what he mentioned, like the kind of carnival atmosphere, was definitely there. That vibe was there. Uh, they had the main ballrooms where they had their big panels going on, and uh, I was able to sit down for. Um, panels with uh, Tom Kane and uh, Jeremy Bullock, and I'll get to that in a bit. And then a couple panels I sat in uh, with Edward, Edward James almost. And then they had a huge ballroom for like gaming and stuff, so people playing board games and magic and you know Pokemon or what, whatever you want to call it. But out in the main lobby area, I guess they had a couple vendors out there, and one of them had a DJ going and uh, just tents, and they had you know of course people, a lot of people you know. Uh, decked out in you know cosplaying and stuff like that, much more so than I saw. I think even at, at Wizard World Austin or at the Dallas Con. And then they had this main open area where they had they had an actual roller derby rink that they built. They had a miniature wrestling ring that that they had some kind of crazy wrestling going on. They had guys doing martial arts displays and uh, sword fighting. They had a little bit of uh, I guess an area for. Uh, Quidditch, you know, from the Harry Potter uh, yeah. movies. So I guess, I guess there's actual Quidditch leads out there, um, which which is kind of funny when you when you look at it because they're just, I mean, obviously they don't have rooms and stuff, but they're just literally running around throwing the ball through the hoop and and stuff like that. Um, so it was like in kind of this this you know big area that had all that going on, and there were a couple vendors out there. Um, so that was kind of cool. So, you know, if you were into something, there's plenty of it there for you for you to take it up. I mean, it's it's kind of an all walks thing. It's not really like a strictly comic, you know, comic book focused kind of deal. Um, and then when you go into like the dealer and the um, the artist alley section, they did something really cool. I thought with artist alley, and I think sometimes at cons, and and we saw it at the Wizard World con, where the artists artist alley kind of gets short shrifted and I feel sorry for the guys at, at, at Wizard at Wizard World Austin. They had rows of of uh, Artist Alley, and what happens is you had to literally go down a row and then come back up the same row to go down the next row. They didn't like you couldn't swing your way through each row, so 
you could kind of take a peek down at the end of the row, and if it didn't look like it was interesting to you, you you know, you could just kind of avoid it and turn around and walk back. And at Comic Palooza, the way they had it set up was it was like a winding, uh, um, snaking path through through the whole thing, and that was the only way you could get to the dealer area. So. It, it was great for the artists and the, and the people you know, that had tables set up because you didn't feel like people could avoid you by just kind of looking down there and turn around and walking the other way. If you wanted to get through the dealer area, you had to walk through Artist Alley. So it was really cool to see everybody, you know, what they were selling, um, you know, what kind of sketching they were doing, if they were selling prints. You know, some of them had sculpting and stuff like that. So, yeah, so the Artist, Artist Alley was kind of cool. I wish – you know, like I said, with all cons, I wish I had more money to get original art and to do cool stuff and commissions and stuff, but budget's been a little tight lately. And, I mean, most of these guys sketch for a pretty decent rate. I mean, it's not like they're charging hundreds of dollars or anything. Most of them will do simple sketches or um, even full figures for anywhere from 20 bucks to 40 or 50 bucks. And, uh, and you know, most of them are, are really – I mean, even Phil Hester, I think, was doing – almost like full commissions for like a hundred, which, I mean, if you've seen his work and, and the quality he does for that caliber of artist, that's, that's really not bad. So it was really kind of cool. The, the dealer area I thought was good, but not great. Um, and, and the same thing I'll say with, with the Dallas con, and I don't know if it's maybe just a soft economy for it or if things aren't going well, but um, even at wizard world, there's a lot more, um, the vendors there that were selling a, a wider variety of things, more trade vendors, more um, you know toy action figure vendors that were selling stuff. And uh, at, at this one, were, there were a few guys that were selling like dollar books. There were four or five guys that were selling um, stuff that was like half off of their marked price, which was pretty much um, like looking at guide and taking half. There was uh, Bedrock, which is a local Houston chain. We're selling pretty much whatever it was marked in the box. So they weren't really counting anything. And uh, there were several vendors that were selling, like, and John, you'll you'll appreciate this because you've been um, tracking stuff down in the in the stores. They were selling like the Captain America branded for the new series Captain America for the, the movie figures, yeah. the Marvel stuff. Everything was like twelve ninety five. And if it was any kind of chase variant or whatever, it was like fifteen to eighteen bucks. Wow! Um, I just found not to uh, change the subject. I'm going to cut you off, but uh, <laughs> I just found the Crossbones figure today. I saw that, which um, supposedly it's like one per case or whatever. And um, I got I got really lucky, but it's so cool. And and now I'm going through the put it on the shelf, leave it in the package fight in my head. Um, so I'll see how that goes. But I've I've really been happy with the movie figures. I I guess the Thor figures I weren't that uh, um excited about. They looked great, but they weren't. They didn't have a big variety of them. The Cap figures they really went into the comic series as well. Um, so you get your Crossbones yeah. and and some other ones that are really cool. And like the World War Two Cap is really cool. Then there were a couple guys that had uh, quarter bins. It was like buy four get one free. So they were even less than a quarter. And it was it was a real hodgepodge, um, and some of them were really low low quality. And I even passed on um, to fill my holes. And then there was a guy that was selling like forty for twenty bucks, so they're basically fifty cent issues. And I filled a lot of. Um, I'm starting to go back and get the, these Alpha Flight, so I 
like I've got like the first 50 issues of that now, and I was able to fill in some recent comics that I was missing. And uh, there's another vendor that had stuff that was pretty reasonably priced. Um, and and as as you guys know, I talk about it all the time my uh, Uncanny X-Men collection. I'm looking to go from 141 up, and so I got two more of those, and, and it was like a $7 issue and a $4 issue, but they were in the 140s and the early 150s, and uh, they were in really good shape. I mean, they were probably like 8s, maybe 8.5s, which, um, so for that price, it was really not bad for for those for that vintage issue. And uh, so now I'm down to 5. I need 5 more, and I'll have basically like the last 30-plus years of uncanny in my in my collection sweet um yeah but other than that i mean it, you know just like i said it's just it has a really different vibe i mean it's 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 kind of sort of like san diego because there's there's some of that going on in san diego but it's it that that comic palooza con just has a really different vibe than, than any other show i've been to and uh you know, just tons of panels. I mean, just tons of panels. I mean, every hour there's like five to six, if not more, panels going on, which um, can make it tough if, if there's a couple. Like there are a couple going on at the same time I, I wanted to catch. But if you're, if, like I said, if you're into you know different different things, you can kind of find a panel that fits you know what you're looking for. If you want to, you know, a panel on how to make your own custom figures or uh, cosplay or costuming or you know any of that kind of stuff, uh, there was there's panels for it. But um, but the highlight, uh, there are a couple highlights for me. One is, and I'll probably put this up on the website. I think I'm going to do like a like a full blog post and put some photos up and stuff. But Edward James Almost had a panel with Bob Layton, who of, of everybody knows Bob Layton was the artist on Iron Man, did you know the whole Demon in the Bottle stuff, and he's been doing comics for you know 40 years plus or pretty close to 40 years. And um, Edward's son uh, Michael, Michael Almost, and uh, Michael's a, a film director. And uh, producer, and him and Bob Layton are working on a project, and they pulled Edward into it. And it's at the very early stages, but it was something they announced um, for the first time at Comic Palooza. And it's a project they're calling Metal, M-E-T-T-L-E. And the premise behind is is Edward James almost is going to play a character that 20 years prior he was a superhero, and uh, apparently, I guess he was like a Vietnam vet that that while he, he was over there, they, him and a bunch of guys were kind of experimented on and gained superhuman powers. And 20 years ago, something happened to him. He was he was fighting some villains or something like that. This is the premise behind it. And basically crippled to the point where he his, he loses his superpowers and he's, he's basically become a cripple. And so I guess the story is um, him looking back on his life and it's kind of going to take place or tell the story of what happened to him 20 years ago and whatever happened to him 20 years ago is kind of come back on him in the present day and how he deals with trying to overcome this, whatever it is, without his superpowers. Um, like I said, while they tell the story, the backstory behind it. And uh, I guess uh, Bob is, is helping, doing some writing on it and producing, and I guess Michael is going to do, do the direction on it, and uh, Edward's going to star in it. And so they're pretty jazzed about it. Uh, it sounds like it's going to be one of those projects, you know, it, I would call it independent. At this point, you know, it probably doesn't have all its funding together. They're still trying to get the script together, but uh, but it kind of had an interesting take on it. And, and Edward, he's an interesting character if you've ever caught him in interviews or listened to him and stuff. And one of the things he's trying to 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 do with the story is really promote like a Latino superhero. You know, try and you know um, you know bring that to the forefront. You know, it's not really 
a story too much about the culture of the hero, but just to kind of bring to prominence um, that aspect of it. And, and the way they described it was um, he wanted to do for the superhero genre what he did for the sci-fi genre with uh, Battlestar. So I, I, I thought that was kind of an interesting uh, project that, that hopefully we'll, we'll see come, come to fruition one day. Sounds pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was I thought it was pretty interesting. The uh, and, and like I said, they seem pretty jazzed about it. The uh, one of the other panels I sat in was uh, Tom Kane and Jeremy Bullock, who of course Jeremy Bullock plays played Boba Fett in the original trilogy, and uh, and Tom Kane, who does a ton of voices on. I mean, in general, he's a voice actor, and uh, he does the voice of Yoda on the Clone Wars. He's also done the voice of Yoda in some of the video games. Uh, the Star Wars related video games, and he does. I don't know if you. I mean, if, John, you you watch the Clone Wars, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, I, and Jordan, I know you've seen the movie and, and a few episodes here or there. But the exactly. guy that does the opening, yeah, the guy that does the opening narration to the episodes, that kind of has that radio voice going on. Yes, that that's Tom Kane, who also does the voice of Yoda. So it's really funny how um, how it's the same guy, right? Um, but he's he's done a bunch of other voices too. He's he's done stuff for um, you know Robot Chicken and uh, Ben Ten and and a few other animated. He's done stuff in animated for forever. Um, he, he Wolverine the X Men. He did Magneto's voice in Wolverine in the X Men. So he's you know been a voice actor for for a long long time. And he's a really tall dude. I mean it's kind of funny. He 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 does voiceover work for one of the shortest characters um, ever. And he's he's like six foot six. He's a huge guy, so it's just kind of funny, you know, listen to them talk and you know how he goes about things. And one of the funny things he 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 was talking about was like stunt casting for voiceover work. You know, when these movies will get like Brad Pitt or or, or these big guys in, and he it was kind of funny. He 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 was uh, I guess kind of putting it down a little bit, you know, to say, hey, there's guys that. Um, use this to feed their kids and uh, make a living and do a pretty darn good job at it. And you know, one of these Hollywood types that you know make hand over fist come in and and uh, just to, just to do it because you know their kids want them to be in a cartoon or something. He just kind of had a little quip uh, against that, so I thought that was that was kind of funny. What's Jeremy Bullock up to these days? He's uh, uh, it sounds like he's doing a lot of in the UK. A lot of U- a he goes to a lot of conventions, so they they probably um, you know obviously pay for him to kind of ride around. But he talked about uh, a stint he did on like Law and Order UK, and uh, the way he made it sound was he's done some theater work, and it sounds like he's doing a lot more uh, British TV series work, you know, guest appearance and and stuff like that. So he uh, he made it sound like he's you know pretty steady on the acting side over the years. Um, even though we, you know, obviously he, we know him from uh, from from Star Wars. Uh, yeah, he he shows up at conventions and says he's no good to me, dead over and over again. And signs autographs and, <laughs> yeah, and yeah, now his voice yeah, is even in the the current print. Yeah, yeah, it was kind of funny because he was talking about, um, you know, there, there, he took questions and and there were some folks that were asking him stuff and uh, asked about the script and things like that. And he said when they filmed both Empire and Jedi because. A, it was very secretive, and B, because he didn't really have that many lines to begin with, they didn't even give him a script. So he would just like show up that day, and they would tell him what to say, and uh, and he would say it. And uh, so it's kind of funny. And then they asked him about some of his stunt work and stuff, and uh, he said that that a couple of stunt they had five stunt men that played Boba Fett um, 
in, in Return of the Jedi, and he did he did the rest. And he said a couple of those guys actually got kind of hurt. Um, yeah, you know, I guess the flinging around, you know, when when you know he a got thrown in the sarlacc and then when he jetpacked across or whatever. Um, but yeah, I thought that was kind of funny that there are you know five uh, five stuntmen to play a guy that has what maybe forty five seconds of screen time in the whole in the whole movie. Yeah, no yeah. kidding. He really became so a star was, in the Christmas uh, special. Yes, yes. Um, but yeah, it was kind of cool and. Then, um, so, so that was that panel. That was a lot of fun. And then um, this morning, I went to um, Edward James. Almost did a panel to just talk about Battlestar, and um, it was kind of cool. He was pretty candid about about a lot of it. He, he it was funny. They asked him about the Battlestar Galactica and what he thought of the, the original versus uh, the current. And he said he's never seen the original Battlestar. You know, he's never actually the seventy series. He said at the time he was doing theater six days a week and you know eight shows. You know, eight, or he was doing eight shows a week and just didn't have the time. And when they first came to him, he you know, he knew of it, but he never actually watched it. He didn't really want to do it because um, that whole campy. You know, we've all seen the original Battlestar, and uh, he just he just felt like you know that as an actor, that's just not his his thing, and he didn't he didn't really want to do it. And um, so when he 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 said he put a lot of conditions on the producers on, on, you know, Ron Moore and, and David Icke before doing it. And one of it was two, two of the conditions he actually got was he got full script control and full creative control over his character. So if there's something he didn't want to do, he had the kind of right of first refusal on, um, on, you know, dumping it. And then the other one was that he was non-exclusive. So if he needed to kind of disappear for three or four days or a week to go do something else that um, he would have that ability. Wow! So I thought that was that was kind of interesting too. The, the other thing he announced was he got word, I guess the um, Friday before that he's going to be um, the new foil for Dexter on the next season of Dexter. So he's going to play a professor of theology that kind of goes up. He's going to be like the um, I guess you know John Lithgow played played a character in Dexter as like the main opposition, and then um, oh, in the third season, what was his name? Uh, the guy that played Bill Organa, Jimmy Smith. Smith was kind of Dexter's foil in that season, so so that was that was kind of, kind of funny. And then the other thing he said he had written into his contract was funny. He said the first time there are four-eyed or dual-lipped aliens, he's done. <laughs> He said, uh, "He said if he if that ever came up in the script, he would just do a pat. He would pass out on camera and just never wake up again. And that would be the end of Admiral Adama if they if they went down that road with uh, with Battlestar. And it was kind of funny because he his panel was from eleven to twelve, and it was like twelve thirty, and nobody told him to stop talking, and he just kept on going. I mean, he kept taking questions, and he was really you know." Uh, very interactive with the audience. There was no moderator or anything. He just kind of got up there and just uh, just kind of riffed on what people you know wanted to talk about. And uh, I guess Bob Layton had a had a panel in the in the room next to him. And at at uh, noon when it was supposed to be Bob Layton's panel, he's there were like two people in there. And so here comes Bob Layton walking into the to the ballroom, and uh, and his son was uh, Ed, Edward's son was in there, and they started flagging him down because he was just going and. Uh, and but it was kind of funny. Bob kind of went up there and said, "You do realize that you're hijacking my panel, and that nobody's in my panel because they're all stuck over here in your panel." And uh, so he basically told Bob to sit down, and then they, you know, we kind of did uh, 
they they both of them did did the panel um for the for the other hour. So basically it was Edward James almost for 2 hours and uh you know they even had to kind of flag him off at at the 2 hour mark because he had other other places to be and other things to do. So he was a really cool guy, you know, just you know, not afraid to talk about his experience and his acting and um you know, to have a real personality, not not you know, not real uptight. You know, some of these guys can can you know do their 50 minutes or whatever and then they're they're ready to be done and go and you know he stood around after both panels both days and you know, shook hands and talked to people and um you know mingled with the crowd and stuff like that so so that was it was pretty cool um so it was, it was just a lot of fun just a lot of fun and then uh the other panel I sat in and then I'll stop talking about comic palooza um cuz I'm sure you guys were talking about something else was uh Chris Roberson and um Phil Hester. They both did a panel to kind of talk about their experience in with Wonder Woman and Superman, especially both having taken over from JMS. And so that was kind of cool listening to them. And obviously, if you heard last week's episode, you heard us talk to Chris Roberson. So it was kind of cool to hear him, uh, uh, hear them both talk. And one of the questions I asked Phil Hester was, um, because he writes and draws, was you know what it, you know. How does he treat one or the other, and, and you know, does he use one to decompress from the other? And he says, yeah, absolutely. He says when he feels like he's writing too much, uh, he likes to go back and draw. And then he said when he kind of draws too much, it uh, he likes to go back to writing because he said, you know, he said writing can be or drawing can can be physically tough. You know, he said he said I could do a comic book in you know one to three days if i have to i could bang on a script in one to three days he goes i can't draw a comic book in one to three days you know there's just no way that that's possible for it to have any kind of quality to it so that was kind of cool and of course um inevitably somebody in the office asked about or somebody in the audience asked about what they knew about the dcu post uh flashpoint and of course they said uh you know nothing. It was funny. Chris Roberson said, "He goes, I don't have a, an NDA and I don't have exclusivity." He said, "So if I knew, I could tell you and I wouldn't be sued." He said, "But um, he said they haven't told him anything." So he said he really and truly does not have any clue as to what DC plans on doing after Flashpoint. And um, Phil said he does have an NDA in place, so he couldn't tell you if he did know. But he said he said honest, honestly, honestly, he said he did not know what was going on. And uh, it always cracked me up when people ask those questions because it's like, do you really think they're going to slip and tell you, you know? Yeah. Um, it, it's just, it, it's like when you're watching the press conference and they ask the president or the general on, on screen. So what time exactly is the attack going to start and where exactly are you going to be bombing, you know, this per, you know, these group of people or whatever. And, you know, they, they give you the answer. It's like, do you really think they're stupid enough to tell you exactly what they're going to do? Um, but you know, nevertheless, somebody always asks that question. So, so again, it was just a lot of fun. It was pretty cool. And then, obviously, since we interviewed Chris, um, I was able to kind of go up and just reintroduce myself and uh, and and shake his hand and and you know thank him for for the interview and and stuff. So, so like I said, all in all, you know, good time. I look forward to it next year. I hope uh, that I can get Brad and Frank and Bill uh, down next year for that. I think I, I was telling uh, John and 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 Jordan off. Off uh, before we started recording that, I think if I had my choice of of two to go to, if it was the Dallas Con again or this one, I think I would um, try and get the guys to come down to Comic Palooza just because I think there's more variety. There's more of a reason to come back multiple days as opposed to Dallas Con. 
Um, it's not as loaded with the celebrity type stuff, but uh, but there's a lot more there's a lot more going on. So uh, so it was, yeah, it was a good time. Good time. I'm, I'm uh, again thank John Simons for hooking us up with some press passes and uh, hopefully if the if the boys come down next year or for sure next year I'm going to get some kind of uh, decent recording equipment so I can I can get some good interviews but. Uh, uh, since those guys weren't down, I, I don't. I didn't have anything available that would get good audio that would be usable uh, for the con. So, uh, so I'm, that's enough of me talking. What do you, What do you guys have? Well, that, I just want to say that's uh, that's pretty cool. Two cons locally, two weeks in a row. I mean, Jordan, I, I guess we're in the same boat. I mean, we don't. Do you ever hear of anything besides New York Comic Con? Sometimes little stuff that's at like maybe a local hotel conference room or something, but. Um, yeah, pretty much just NYC. I hear things about Big Apple Con. I don't know how big or small that is. That might be something that I want to check out in the future. And there's something called Icon, which is in Suffolk County out on the eastern end of Long Island. And that's a very hardcore sci-fi con. Uh, they mentioned that there are some comic guests, but it's mostly sci-fi. They have a lot of like actors from... Uh, old sci-fi television shows and things like that. So I'd, I'd probably like to check that one out sometime as well, but I don't expect it to be like a huge comic book presence, but that's all I know of around here. Yeah, it's kind of funny. It was such a drought for us for so long, and you really the only thing we had were the, were the shows in Dallas. Between the two Dallas Comic Cons they put on twice a year, and up until recently they were very small, and the like the Star Wars Star Trek fan days that uh, that gets put on, and then other than that, it was just like hotel shows. So to go from that to bigger Dallas Con twice a year to Wizard World Austin to now Comic Palooza is really kind of cool. Um, you know, in a state as big as Texas, to have you know to to for so long to have nothing to now have have something worth you know at, not only attending but attending and covering is uh, is pretty cool. Now, Jordan, have you been to New York yet in the three or four years it's been around? I've never been to any type of convention for comic books, sci-fi, anything. Um, I'd like to, but I just haven't gotten around to it yet. Right. I'm, I'm interested uh, if, if you get to go in, in October to New York. Uh, obviously, I'd, I'd like to get your reactions because it's unbelievably huge and crazy. And I'm really interested to see what Russ has to say about it being that Russ has been to San Diego. Um, I'd like to hear how it compares, like in size and, and magnitude. I mean, I know, I know, San Diego is the holy grail. That's the con, but uh, I think New York matches it in size and goings on. Um, it, it gets bigger every year. They always announce that they're adding more space. Every, every year that they've done it, they've added more space the following year, and now this year they're adding a day. So uh, it should be very, very crazy. Yeah, I'm curious, too, definitely to see how it compares. I mean, it's almost to the point where I'm glad I went to San Diego, but the more I hear about, you know, passes selling out the first day, hotel rooms selling out, you know, within the first couple hours, and just the enormity of it, I'm not as jazzed to really want to go back um, as I was, you know, to go the first time. I think it, it, it's, it's just, it's gotten to be where it's almost like a spectacle. Um, and maybe when they expand the convention center out there and they, and they give it more room and they allow more people in, maybe, maybe it won't be so bad, but I'm curious to see what they do with Chicago because, um, you know, McCormick is the largest convention center in the world. And, um, 
you know, for, for it to, to get, and I, I guess it's getting bigger every year, but I'm curious to see if maybe in four or five years, um, how that will expand out and, and what they're able to, to bring to that. So, you know, it could be, you know, within five or six years, we might have three that are, you know, pretty major between San Diego, Chicago, and New York, which would be kind of cool because it'll spread it out across the country. Um, Very good. Um, I will jump in. I saw the two big sequels of the summer. I saw Kung Fu Panda 2 and Hangover 2. And uh, I'm guessing nobody else has seen these yet or is not planning to or... or I, uh, it's, it's funny, I hate to admit it, but I have not seen Kung Fu Panda 1 yet. And I, I don't know why, but I just, I, I just haven't. Um, maybe it's not having small kids around um, at all. But, I mean, usually we see a lot of the DreamWorks Disney stuff. But for whatever reason, I just haven't seen it. So I think, I think when, when this one comes out on Blu-ray or whatever, I'll probably end up getting both of them because I hear, I hear a lot of good stuff. And The Hangover, I did see The Hangover 1, and uh, I talked to my son over the weekend, and he saw Hangover 2. So I'm, I'm curious as to what you think because, I'll, cause of, because of what he said. So okay, so I've I will, seen about oh, half of Kung Fu Panda 1 did nothing for me. And I've seen all of The Hangover, which I would describe as half an hour of hilarity in a two-hour movie. So, I mean, I have no real interest in seeing the second one. And I hear it's just kind of uh, the escape from L.A. of the Hangover series <laughs> anyway. But uh, I, I am interested in hearing what you think or what you thought of it. Um, all right, I'll start with Kung Fu Panda 2. Uh, Kung Fu Panda was pretty awesome. It was, like, my kids loved it. It had enough goofy, like, nonsense, Jack Black slapstick uh, for the kids and plenty of, like, nods to Kung Fu stuff and, like, the action was, was pretty cool. And o- overall, I really loved Kung Fu Panda. Kung Fu Panda 2 is... Probably a better film, but it went a little bit on the serious end. It it has some dark stuff in it. It has some daddy issues in it. Um, There's like a murdering peacock that is the villain. (laughs) So um, it, it might be a better film. My kids liked it as well, but I felt that there was less for for them in it. Um, but a very, you know, a very worthy sequel. It's going to be, they end it on a perfect note for a third movie, of course. Um, one thing I will say about it is it's probably the most beautifully animated film that I've ever seen. Wow. Uh, yeah, I, I think, I'm trying to think what I, I think Up was very, very good. And I thought this was better than Up. They just did an unbelievable job with the landscapes and the scenery um, and the fast-moving action and everything. And, like, when you see, you know, Poe, who is Kung Fu Panda, when you see him up close and you really get the feel for, like, the individual fur or the – I shouldn't – that's probably the wrong way to say it – the individual hairs in the fur – um, and it kind of blowing in the wind and things like that. I mean, the the animation right now is just ridiculous, and this – was tops for that. Um, I didn't see it in 3D. I don't love 3D. My kids don't love 3D, and it makes like a $50 afternoon like a $70 afternoon. <laughs> yeah. So uh, so we skipped that. But, I mean, everybody enjoyed it. I, I definitely liked it. A little bit short of the first one for me, but a, a quality sequel, definitely. Um, 
Hangover 2, like, I love Hangover. It's my kind of comedy. Uh, I love Zach Galifianakis and uh, Ed Helms, I think, is hilarious as well. And, uh, you know, I went going in hearing so much negative stuff about how this was, like, the exact same movie. And I really, I mean, it was, but it wasn't any more of the same movie as any other sequel you know, yeah, they're they have a joke and they're gonna cash in on it again. But it wasn't like I knew note for note what was gonna happen the entire movie. Um, I got a lot of laughs out of it. Was it as good as the first one? No, of course not, because the whole cool thing about the first one is you don't know what happened to the guy. You know, that's the <laughs> that's the thing. You have all this craziness going on, but you you're it's almost a mystery as well which is really cool. So you lose a little bit of that, you know, first-time feeling with the sequel, but I, I enjoyed it. I mean, um, I definitely didn't feel like it was a total retread cash, dra- cash grab of the first one. Um, it wasn't as good, but I, I liked it. So that's that's where I'm at with those two. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, my son said it was just he just felt like it was the same movie over again. He didn't hate it, but he didn't he didn't love it, and he loved the first one. He thought the first one was just really really funny. And I know my brother, my brother was and his wife were going to see it tonight. But uh, I saw the first one, and I don't know if it was just it was overhyped to me. Like everybody kept saying it was like the funniest movie ever, and I just kept hearing how funny it was. And then when I saw it. I don't know. Movies are funny with me sometimes. If I'm not in the right state of mind or in the right frame of mind for for a comedy, then I view it differently. And um, and you know sometimes when when people overhype things, it it can't live up to your expectations, and that that affects it as well. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, I thought it was funny, but I didn't think it was as funny as a lot of uh, as a lot of people thought it was. But uh, I'll tell you one thing that annoyed me about Hangover Two is you know how we always say. Um, you know, you watch a trailer and, like, all the stuff they put in the trailer doesn't even happen in the movie. Yeah. Everything in the trailer was directly taken out of the film. So it really killed, like, a third of the jokes in the movie, probably. Kind of like the, the dragnet syndrome. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I 80s. mean, yeah. I mean,. You know, some things, I know they're trying to sell the movie, but it would have been much funnier if we didn't know that Ed Helms had the Tyson tattoo. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and the whole bit with, oh, it's a monkey. You know, like <laughs> like every joke in that trailer is pulled right out of the film, which gives away a lot of the funny lines in the film. I mean, um, who's the guy, the, the funny Asian uh, guy? um uh, Crap. Ken Jeong. Ken Jeong, right. He, I mean, that whole, you know, he, all of his lines in the trailer are, are taken dead out of the movie, so you lose all of that surprise element as well um, because you're not supposed to, you know, he's not invited, quote. So, like, when he shows up, it should be a giant surprise, but not if you've seen it 5,000 times in the trailer. Yeah. Um, so, whatever. Again, all in all, I, I, I laughed a lot, and I, I liked it. Um, I mean, you know, can it can anything be as good as the first one when they're selling the same joke? I mean, probably not. But um, anyway, let me let me be careful how I phrase this. <laughs> I know exactly where you're going with this. <laughs> in a in a 
<laughs> in a movie theater of uh, hmm, that wasn't on a back street in Manhattan. I <laughs> I've never seen <laughs> I've never seen that much genitalia, <laughs> and it it broke the rated R opening record. It yeah. made like a hundred ten mil in the first four days. So selling that same joke is definitely, you know, working and I'm sure we'll see Hangover 3. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, I would I would at this point I would probably say so. Jordan, what do you got? You got anything to wow yeah, us with? Uh, yeah, uh, issue 27 of a little book I like to call Secret Warriors and so does Marvel. Uh, just came out and it kind of blew me away just as the whole series has been doing since the beginning. So I thought we might talk about Secret Warriors by Jonathan Hickman for a bit. Um, it premiered about two years ago now because they're on issue 27, uh, so give or take two years. And we're going to spoil issue 27 as well as some of the other things in the series now. So if you don't want to hear this part, skip ahead. Um, but the basic reveal at the end of issue one is that Nick Fury, head of S.H.I.E.L.D., you know, played by Samuel Jackson in, in the Marvel movies, but here in the comic book, uh, you find out he's been working for his enemy for the last however many years he's worked for S.H.I.E.L.D., that S.H.I.E.L.D. is actually a subsidiary of HYDRA, and it's all been a sham the whole time, and no one thought to tell him. Well, so this whole series now of 27 issues, it's been him and his group, the Secret Warriors and the Howling Commandos, tracking down HYDRA, destroying bases, uh, stealing helicarriers, and fighting uh, not only HYDRA, but also this new group called Leviathan, um, Lots of intrigue and mystery and Nick Fury being a badass and all these other kinds of really awesome things told in the – I don't want to say typical Hickman style, but in the typical typical Hickman style of he always leaves just enough out so you're always asking questions. Um, and you know the narrative is going back and forth you know, months and months. So you're, there's always those dark corners left to be filled in later, and when he does fill them in, it's really awesome. So we get to issue 27 this past Wednesday. And where when we last had left Nick Fury, he had been captured by um, John. What's that green Hydra guy's name? Um, with the with the mask, Kraken. Kraken, yes. Or Kraken. Release the Kraken. So when we last left Nick Fury in issue number twenty six, he had been captured by uh, the Kraken or the Kraken, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Uh, who's one of the major Hydra guys? But not only has he been captured, Baron Strucker has been captured as well, and they're both tied to chairs in the same room, and they're left to kind of hash out their differences. And you don't really know what's going on until this revealed that the Kraken, and once again, spoilers, is actually Jake Fury, the brother of Nick Fury, who we thought was dead for years. Um, we even saw his death in a flashback just a few issues ago where we got kind of the bridge between the S.H.I.E.L.D. book that Hickman's working on and modern S.H.I.E.L.D., so we find out that, hey, something's weirds going on. It's actually Jake Fury. He's not dead. And that means that apparently the jig is up and Nick Fury isn't going to die because it looked like before, like they were going to hash out the differences and then Kraken was going to kill both of them. So in this issue, issue number 27, it's revealed that uh, Baron Von Strucker has been working for Nick Fury the entire time because he's, Nick Fury's been using his brother, Jake Fury, as the Kraken to control Hydra. So it's kind of the reverse bait and switch, if you will, in that what we thought was the case the entire time since issue one, that big reveal of, hey, S.H.I.E.L.D. is Hydra. 
Well, it turns out Hydra is actually S.H.I.E.L.D. And that everything Nick Fury has done, including the death of his son and everybody else, has been this long con game to kind of destroy this organization from within. Um, and in the middle of issue number 27, we get one of the most badass moments from Nick Fury yet, where uh, he holds a gun to Baron Von Strucker's head. And uh, he asks him one question. He says, you got any final words? When Baron Strucker says yes, he says, too effing bad, and shoots him in the head. Uh, point, black range, point blank range. It's an awesome uh, splash page. And sh- strangely enough, John, that's not where the issue ends. It, am I alone in thinking that was kind of weird? Yeah. Yeah, it, was, uh, it could have definitely been the end of the issue. I mean, now that I'm actually holding the issues in my hand, it's not even it's not even halfway through. It's like a third of the way through the issue is when he does this awesome thing that looks like it should end the issue. I guess it's maybe because they uh, they cut a few issues from the from the full order. Yeah, also it was and, and, like thirty five or something. And there's also uh, like it, it was cut, like you said, but then his ending was so big that they ended up extending it past what they were supposed to cut it down to. It was going to be 35, and then they said, all right, it'll be 27, and now it's going to end up being 28 or something like that. So uh, there's definitely been some changes in the length of the series, so I could, I could see that causing some uh, awkward points. Yeah, so I, I absolutely, after this, uh, this climax, if you will, I can't wait to see where they're going to go in the denouement because that was an awesome moment you know reading through these 27 issues it was all building to this and it was a great payoff and now it's like okay so now what's going to happen in this major 28th issue but so if you haven't checked out secret warriors i know i just spoiled all this but check it out it is such a cool story i mean we we over here love what jonathan hickman is doing all over the marvel universe but this book in particular not a lot of people read it and it's a it's a crying shame because it's a fantastic book yeah it's it's funny i smell omnibus yeah yeah, I have every issue. I've been on it since uh, issue one. I think Jordan has too. But, uh, but do you have the uh, the list? And yeah. Yep. <laughs> the other issue. The, yeah, I have. The yeah, list. I have the Secret Warriors thirteen. Um, no, I'm sorry. I have the uh, new. No, it's Mighty Avengers thirteen. I guess which is the first appearance of them. Oh, where see, they? That's the one I don't have. Yeah, it's basically the only good thing that came out of Secret Invasion is the <laughs> <laughs> that and well, yeah. Well, my God's got a hammer. Yeah. Yeah, Which but was also Nick Fury. What's funny is like he has all of these cool characters that were, you know, introduced as his team. But besides Phobos, they're all kind of like nondescript. I, I guess is the word that it, it's. What I'm getting at is it's really Nick Fury's book. Yeah, I mean, like every other character has had something to do, like. Yo-Yo, spoilers, loses her arms, and so that was kind of her defining trait. You had the whole thing with JT and Daisy and their story. You had the whole issue devoted to um, – uh, what's his name? Not Sorcerer, but it's something Hellfire. like – Was it? Hellfire? No, 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 no. The, the heavy Druid? Druid, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, so, I mean, they've, they've given all these characters their due, but in a book called The Secret Warriors, you're right. It's very much the Nick Fury book guest starring occasionally the Secret Warriors and almost as often the Howling Commandos. There's, um, and then I think, again, I think, uh, I mean, he knew, when we spoke to Jonathan Hickman a while back, he was a few issues into to this book, I think, at that time, and he knew that it was kind of a maxi-series, if you want to call it that. He knew the end point was going to be around 30, 35 issues at that at that time. But it seems like he introduced some things late in the game that won't have time to 
like you know the, the gray team came into it and then there was a whole bunch of other secret warriors and and the uh is it Eden Fessy, the other guy, the reality warping guy that they brought in really late? I um, would not be surprised if when this ends, they announce a new ongoing ongoing from him, focusing on Nick Fury and S.H.I.E.L.D., um, especially with the way this issue kind of wraps up. Um, I could see them, especially because he's writing you know, this other S.H.I.E.L.D. book, which is – I like S.H.I.E.L.D. almost better than Secret Warriors, I think. It's just so different and so interesting. Um but with him kind of cornering the market on Marvel's S.H.I.E.L.D. universe right now, it would almost just make so much sense, especially because we know he can write an awesome Nick Fury. Yeah, I, I would buy it. I mean, I would definitely... I'd buy I would buy. I would buy a Nick Fury book, to be honest with you, no matter who wrote it. I'd give it a shot. <laughs> Rob if, if it was Hickman, I'd... Uh, all right, don't, don't be ridiculous, Jordan. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of funny. I haven't picked this one up because I like Hickman's stuff and I love Nick Fury, but uh, I don't know why. I think maybe it was just at a weird spot and I was just trying to cut back. So I'm hoping, kind of like they've done recently with Jason Aaron and and even Brew Baker and JMS and some of the others that have these you know twenty thirty issue runs. They they put them in these omni omnibuy. So I'm, if this one comes out in the omnibuy format, I will uh, I'll definitely pick it up. Uh, Russ, in one issue, Nick Fury staples a message to a minion's head. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> yeah, his his fury is really dynamite. He he gets it. He gets what the fans want out of Nick Fury. <laughs> he wants him to be the baddest mama jama in the room. You know. Very cool. Um, what do I want to talk about? I'll, I'll talk about L.A. Noir quickly because I, I think we mentioned that we were excited about it last BS show and I've gotten a chance to play it for a while. It's a really good game. There's something missing for me. Um, basically, what I've learned to be the premise of the game is so you, you go to all these different crime scenes and you collect the clues. So then every clue that you pick up goes into your database. Then you question the uh, the suspects, and if you think they're lying, you call them on lying. And the reason that you would do that is because you're going to have evidence in your database that will prove that they're lying. So sometimes you know immediately you can prove against what they're saying. Sometimes you have to go on a hunch, and you can doubt them. You can believe them. Um, and then as you finish your questioning, you get rated, like how many times you got it right, whether they were lying or not which is kind of a cool, different concept. The problem is it does not bear on your advancement in the game at all. You can get one out of the four questions right or all of them right, and you're still going on to the next steps of the case. Um, it just really affects like your overall rating and your um, achievements. So, like, that was kind of a bummer to me. I'd rather have it make you fail, and now I have to do it again, and through process of elimination, fix the times that I screwed up, if that makes any sense. And so, is the reason they didn't do that, do you think, is for story? Because they seem to really be focusing on the, the fidelity of the narrative in this particular game over the, you know, the sandboxness of, say, a GTA or a, um, the Cowboy one. Yeah, I mean, even if it just, if it was like a tree that was like, nope, you know, I, I don't know, if something told you that you had the wrong information, so now you had to go back and re-question that person, 
like something to make you double back or start over would just be my preference. Like it really, you can just, you could totally ignore the story, randomly choose whether you think the person was lying or telling the truth, and you're still going to get moved on to the next step. Um, so you're kind of getting your hand held through as you go to all the different locations in this in this world and move on to all the cases and everything. I I like the game and I play it straight. Like I try to figure it out and get the questions right and and uh, you know get higher achievement levels and and stuff like that. But you're never stuck. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> you're always oh I only got two out of four right this time, but here we go. You know I'm I'm moving up the ranks. I'm going on to the next murder. So I don't know. I think they I think it's something that they could improve on for L.A. Noir two. Um, but I don't know. So it, it just misses the mark for me. It's got some great gameplay though. I mean you. Some of the suspects run, so you have to chase them on foot and, like, jump them. You know, you're chasing them on rooftops, and you got to tackle them. And, and then there's car chases, of course, and shootouts. And there's all different aspects to the gameplay, which is really cool. Uh, but the mystery end of it just falls a little short because you're always going to be, you know, led to the next spot. John, what's your take on the uh, motion scan technology that they used? I tell you, it really didn't. Uh, it didn't impress me as much as it was impressing everyone else. I thought it was nice. I thought the game looked great. It it didn't really strike me as being like super awesome. And then I got to this one case where the guy, uh, the suspect, is played by the actor. All right, I don't know any names of anybody, but you'll be able to help me figure this out. Oh, you didn't watch Heroes, right, Jordan? But Russ did. Oh, I've seen yeah. every episode of Heroes. Oh, okay, okay. I, I got, I confused myself. Uh, the cop who can hear people's thoughts. Greg Grunberg. Greg Grunberg. Okay, the he, pilot on Lost. That. Oh, very good. That actor plays the part, uh, plays a part in L.A. Noir, and you can totally tell it's him exactly. And that well, was the that was the first time I was like, "Wow, that's really a good likeness." Like I knew who it was without knowing that he was an actor in the game. Well, and your character is played by uh, Andrew Stanton, who is Ken Cosgrove on Mad Men. Um, and I mean, he, I think from the bits I played because I've been or not played, but I've been watching a playthrough on YouTube, and the bits I've seen, he seems to have done quite an impressive job as the protagonist. Yeah, I'm not familiar with his work because I don't uh, I don't watch that show, but it, it's very good. I mean, I, I didn't mean to slight it at all, but I'd heard all these things about the new way that they were doing the facial captures and stuff, and it really didn't impress me as much until I saw the uh, the actor that I knew and I was able to recognize him right off the bat. Right, and John Noble's in it too, isn't he? Walter <clears throat> uh, from Fringe. Possibly I'm not at that uh, point of the game yet. <laughs> oh, okay. I thought you had said you had beaten it. Sorry. No, I'm in the middle of disc two, which incidentally, it's a three-disc game, which I don't remember that happening for the 360 before this. Fi- yeah. Final Fantasy was multi-disc, and a lot of the big, I think maybe Oblivion was multi-disc. Some of the, some of the big RPGs like that are, are, multi, are multi-disc for the 360. Cool. So I'm about I'm about halfway through it. I mean, I don't I don't get to play too much. You know, I'll sit down a few times a week for like an hour max. Uh, 
Um, so it seems to be a a pretty long game. I mean, I, I guess I've played five or excuse me, five or six hours, and I'm on disc two. So I would expect it to be like you know a nine to ten hour gameplay, which is pretty good. And wherever I pre-ordered it, was it Best Buy or GameStop or one of those places, I got an additional case um, as the pre-order throw-in. So that's cool. So when I'm done, I'll have an extra case to play. Um, And I'm sure that that could be a DLC thing, you know, like an extra case here or there or uh, a pack of new cases possibly. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's it's explicitly a dated exclusive, so it will be out for... Uh, the other systems eventually, but the, you know uh, Xbox just has the uh, the time exclusive for a period of time, however much they paid for. Very cool. One other thing, uh, quick, Russ, that I, I wanted to bring up to you because I know you're a fan of the show. Um, just on a whim, I was in an, I was in the LCS and I grabbed the one shot for the Dollhouse. Um, I guess it's a oh. prequel to their series that's starting up. Epitaphs? Yeah. Yes. Epitaphs. Yeah. yeah. I uh have you guys read it? I I was yes. unaware of it completely. Um, I I knew it was out. I didn't pick it up. Um and I figured it was one of those things you know if I'm out and about and just kind of feel the the urge, I would I would check it out. I did read it. It focuses on the um the three main characters you meet in uh, Epitaphs 1, the season, not even the season finale of season 1, but the, the extra episode, the unaired one. Um, and you almost never see anybody else from the show until the very end, and I won't spoil who. Yeah. It's one of those things where if you haven't seen every episode of the show, including Epitaph 1, specifically that episode, I can't see anyone new to it really following it. Because you really need to know. There's so much, you know, that future lingo that Whedon created and stuff for the Epitaphs episodes that does not make sense out of context. And so if you've seen those episodes and you enjoyed them like I did or Rusted, you'll probably get a lot out of it. If you haven't, this is not the place to jump in. Yeah, I I love those future uh, episodes in, in Dollhouse. I, I thought they were great. And I, I did. it did strike me as strange the way that Jed Whedon just jumped into this universe. You know, there wasn't much of a explanation opening page or, you know, I was even, I remember turning back and, and wondering if there was going to be like these events take place after the so-and-so episode of Doll. You know what I mean? Like something to give you a clue. Right. But the, he just jumps right in. I guess they just figure they know who's going to buy it and those people who are going to buy it know it well enough that they don't need to explain it. Yeah. Right, and I but, mean, uh, I fall in. I, I understood it I, because oh, I know yeah, the show, so I, I thought it was pretty good, actually. So, And I'm interested to see where it goes from that ending as well. Yeah, I'll have to, I'll have to check it out. I mean, they've, I, I guess the, the new series starts here pretty quick. If it didn't, if it doesn't, if it's not like in the next couple of weeks, I, I, can't, I think it's solicited. Is it an ongoing or a mini? It's a mini. I think it's a five-issue mini. Maybe I think it's, it's solicited July. this month. I th- I'm pretty sure in the in the issue it says that it's coming in July. Okay, so yeah, I think it was the May. Yeah, that makes sense. The May solicit then. That yeah, I did see it there. But it's I guess it focuses on Alpha, who is the um, Alan Tudyk character from Dollhouse, which would make sense from the way this ended. Right. Yeah. I'm, I mean, he's right on the cover and everything, so it's not like a, a spoiler as to who you know who's in it. And I dug so. Jed Whedon's uh, Terminator series that we had talked yeah. about, 1985 and, and 2099, I guess it was. 
Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Well, that's cool. I'll check it out then if you if you uh, if you give it a thumbs up. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you guys want to talk first class for a few minutes here? Sure. Sure. So they've been putting out a lot of clips for the movie as of today, and by the time this episode drops, it'll be the day before the movie comes out, so there might even be more out by the time you hear this, but they've been putting out uh, individual character trailers for the specific X-Men of the first class, Beast, Mystique, all that. Um, then the last couple of days, they've been putting out uh, clips, like actual you know, minute, minute, 30-second clips from the movie featuring pretty much every character, I think, that, that I know of. Kevin Bacon, Sebastian Straw looks pretty awesome. Um, January Jones's Emma Frost, I don't hate as much as I thought I might, um, and she looks good. Everything about it looks surprisingly really, really good. Uh, this was kind of the movie that I think I, I don't want to speak for everyone, but at least for myself, I was like, you know, especially after Wolverine, yeah, they're rushing this one. I think it went through a couple directors, and it seemed to be, you know, everything was last minute. I'm kind of done with X Men, and now with every trailer and every clip I see, I just want to see this movie more. Yeah, I was very cold on this when it first when they first started talking about it. Just the whole premise of going back that far, and then the the, the choice of characters and how it's going to fit. I was really down on it um, and very skeptical. Which which is funny because that's kind of how I wasn't so much down on it when the first X Men movie stuff started coming out, but I was very skeptical. And like you, Jordan, the more I see, the more I like. I really I'm over the whole. I mean, some people are like. I don't get why they chose these characters. Havoc is um, Scott's brother, and they're calling him a Summers, and how they related, and you know Emma wasn't around, but you know when when they were young and Mystique, and it, and I'm that doesn't bother me at all. This the movie universe is the movie universe, and the comic is the comic, and I'm not. I, I don't know. It just doesn't bother me. I mean, as long as they they get the characters down for the most part, and it's fine. One of the coolest things, and it's it's been on the trailer. And I don't think I've ever seen them do this in the comic, but I could be wrong. And I've read a you know, crap ton of X-Men comics over the last 30 years. But when Banshee, when they drop him off, I mean, obviously I've seen him fly um, using his sonic um, vibration. But when he goes in the water and he uses his, his sonic scream as a sonar to ping out the sub that's underwater and Xavier's reading his mind so he could pinpoint the location for Magneto, that was freaking awesome. Yeah, that was really cool. And it's just if they do stuff like that, they'll totally nail it. And I've, I'm like with you. I've seen all the character centric trailers and and the stuff they did with Havoc and how they, you know, it's like they're explaining. His power it. looks awesome. Yeah, it. I mean, it's definitely different than the comics, and they're tying it more into the way that Cyclops's power works in the movies. You know, with it being a red, it almost looks the same way, except instead of Scott tra- uh, channeling it through his eyes. Um, he channels it through a hula hoop. Right. He, he, he basically, yeah. And then, you know, they, they refine it with the circle things, um, which is different. Because in, in, in the comic, he wore the black costume, and as he charged up, he got these concentric circles out from his chest. So basically, if his comic was all black, he, was, he had expended all of his energy. And if it had a you know, bunch of circles, he was fully charged. But, you know, f- again, past that, you know, it's fine. Um, One question you I'm, might... Sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. One question you might be able to answer, uh, because you know a lot more about X-Men than I do. In one of the trailers, I think it's the first time the X-Men meet Sebastian Shaw, he's wearing the Magneto helmet. Is that – has anything to do with the comics? Did he no, create that helmet? Zero. Okay. No, zero. I thought it looked cool though. 
Yeah, yeah, no, it looked really cool. Um, yeah, the the representation they have of Shaw is um, pre Magneto, uh, kind of. Well, yeah, I mean, in general, his power is the same. I mean, what Shaw can do is absorb kinetic energy and channel it into him, basically being indestructible and and super strong. Um, and and they showed him kind of channeling it a little more. I mean, obviously, it's a, it, yeah, it's a movie, so you have to kind of you have to give something a little more visual. Um, than they can do in the comic. But, yeah, I mean, when I think of Sebastian Shaw, Kevin Bacon is definitely not who comes to mind. But, again, if, if, he, if he gives a good performance, and so far I've, I've liked what I've seen, um, then, then so much better. One of the things that I did hear is that uh, supposedly from folks, there's been a few reviews that have come out online that have been overwhelmingly positive, which, which is a good thing. Um, but they say it definitely fits into, they said X2 specifically. So I don't know what, what goes on. There was a spoiler that leaked out on – I forget what it was. It was one of the, one of the websites. Yes. And it was like right there, and I was really pissed that, that it came out. And I'm not going to repeat it here because I if did. you haven't read it, then I don't want to spoil it. But apparently even beyond that spoiler there, or that cameo, there's another cameo in the middle of the movie that is, that is even more impressive than, than the one I read. So I'm really looking forward to see how this all ties together. And um, it, if, if it's done well, I think Matthew Vaughn is becoming one of those directors for me that can do no wrong. It's a smart move by Fox because you have the Marvel Studios doing all this continuity crossing and existing in the same world. And everybody's looking at Fox saying, I wish they would give back the X-Men. And, <laughs> you know, the same goes for Sony and Spider-Man and everything. So maybe this is an attempt to start doing this with the X universe from now on. Yeah, yeah, maybe so. And um like I said, I was real skeptical of the whole taking place in the early sixties and and the Cold War and stuff, but it really kinda has that espionage uh thriller kinda to it. And I think that might be enough to get the masses in to see it and, and give it another twist. So I'm definitely going to see it this coming weekend. I'm really excited about it and uh I'm sure next week whatever we're Whatever we're covering, we'll we'll probably give it a you know give it a little bit of discussion to see what we thought. Here, here's a hypothetical for you. I was listening to the IGN Movies podcast, keep, uh, keeping it real, and either they or one of the readers posited the idea that okay, look, Fox owns or has licensed the the rights to the X Men film properties as well as Fantastic Four, and we know they're rebooting Fantastic Four eventually. If this were if X Men First Class works well. Say we all loved it. We think it was absolutely fantastic, and they did a great job with the '60s aesthetic. Would you be interested? You know, say, say that there will be a new Fantastic Four movie. Would you be interested in seeing that Fantastic Four movie set in the '60s, more you know, as the original comics were, than uh, revived in the modern day as the last two movies were? I don't I know. Wouldn't. I heard. I heard rumor of that as well. I'm sorry. I'll let John, John answer. No, I was just going to say I, I don't think I would. For, for some reason, it works with the X-Men because Xavier and, and Magneto, you know, you know they had that history. It's already been addressed that they were, you know, working together or against each other that far back. So it kind of fits. Um, I mean, listen. I, I know the Fantastic Four comics have been around that long, but it just—it seemed—it would seem forced to me. I think it works with Magneto and Xavier, but for the Fantastic Four, I think it would be a little forced. I—I I don't know. I, again, I—I 
I could see it working. The one thing that w- might be cool is if they did it that way, they might be able to go back to the old rocket ship, you know, more a little closer to the comic origin because it would fit the time period. And then kind of seeing Johnny with the hot rod, you know, the, the 60s, you know, cars and, and some of the, uh, you know, talk with, um, with Ben Grimm and the old neighborhood kind of set up and, um, you know, maybe having Reed be a little older. I, I, it, it may work, you know, but I don't know. I think it's like anything else. You know, if you can, if you can get a good story and get a good director and m- not make it campy, you know, it, it, it might work. I wouldn't be opposed to it. Let me put it that way. All right. Well, I think that we've gone on for quite a bit, and uh, we still have our interview to get to. So unless you guys have anything else that you wanted to mention, I think we will turn it over to our talk with Mr. Daryl Gregory about some Planet of the Apes and his other stuff at Boom. Sounds good. Check out the uh, – go to the website, hhwlod.com, and uh, check out – I'll be putting up – pictures from uh dallas con and from comic palooza and uh like i said check out the article there i'm gonna i'm gonna do some write-up of some of the stuff we talked about too so so definitely check that out on the phone with us we have mr daryl gregory the current writer of boom studios planet of the apes comics how are you doing daryl yeah great good to be here great great so john and i and and a couple of the other guys have been um reading the planet of the apes book and John and I, I think, have, have been into it a little bit more than the other guys, and I don't know if it's just because of our um, fascination and love for Planet of the Apes or you know what, what the deal is. But what, after reading it, John's like, man, I, I wonder if we can talk to this guy and, and, uh, and get him on the show and, you know, a, and ask him about it a little bit. And um, so here we are. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm pretty easy that way. But thank God you didn't invite those other guys because I, I really only wanted to talk to you two. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, they're we- idiots. <laughs> <laughs> Those idiots who don't appreciate the apes. That's right. It's funny. So, uh, I'll have to get a dig in. And uh, our fellow podcaster Jordan is the youngest of the group by, geez, I don't know, twenty years or something. And he's just like, <laughs> I, I really just don't. I have no interest in Planet of the Apes. We're like, you're so dumb. You know, <laughs> you, you have no idea what you're missing. Well, I don't know how old you guys are, but I'm I'm uh, 45, and so for me, it was like I don't remember a time without the Apes. They were just on TV all the time. Um, in Chicago, they played them. It seemed like constantly, and uh, so they're sort of baked into my conscience. So even if I didn't like them, they would I would still you know have memorized all the lines. So, uh, and that's funny you mentioned that because I also uh, grew up in Chicago in the 70s and and. Uh early 80s before I moved to um, the, the Deep South and, and came to Houston, Texas. But uh, it's funny when I, I saw your MTV interview and, and you were talking about, uh, about that, and it, it, it just brings up all those memories. Do you remember watching them back then? And they would show – they would take a week and they would show each movie each day. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I had forgotten it was on ABC. I was thinking it was on WGN. And then I was talking to John Centris, who's like a huge – Apes fan over at Word Balloon Podcast, and he was like, "Yeah, the ABC. It was the ABC Ape Week, and they would play each movie." Yeah, I'd be camped. I'd be camped out in front of those. And I, I've told this before, but I remember the most freaky moment was 
um, I think I must have been about 10 years old, and I saw Beneath the Planet of the Apes when the mutants took their faces off. I think I had nightmares after that. That was the creepiest thing I'd ever seen on television at that point. Yeah, and it was funny because they would I, – I don't know why I remember it being like after school. It was like the 3 o'clock thing on TV oh, maybe. Yeah, I swear they were like a 3.30 afternoon. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, um, and they would alternate. So like I don't know if it was every six months or once a year they would show – they would do the five main ones and then they would take like the TV show they did and they would clip together you know, the two episodes of the TV oh, show to make yeah. a movie. And so it was always, we, we'd always be waiting. When they would show the one, we would always be counting down the time it would take until they showed the other, you know, whichever, whichever one um, was, was due next. So that was you always a like lot of fun. It's like that to explain to your children that there was a time when you had to wait for the shows, the movies to appear, <laughs> you know? Like, oh. I remember, you know, yes. you wait for Wizard of Oz to show up on Thanksgiving because that was the only time you were going to see it. Yeah. I, or, or try imagining telling them that you have to actually – you used to have to actually walk up to the television and turn the knob. Um, <laughs> oh, the you had a, oh, you had a knob. We had a pair of pliers. I was my dad's remote control. He would like, oh, don't turn the channel. And I'd be like – it'd be like you, you stick the pliers and it'd be like – Yep. Yeah, yep, my, yep. my kids, I have two young girls and they don't understand when they're watching something live, you can't skip the commercials. <laughs> you know, they just think everything's T-Bowed, you know, and, and that's, it's amazing that that's the way they grew up. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess we got a, a little bit ahead of ourselves, but... Um, yeah, we, we sort of went off on a tangent immediately, my apologies. No, but that's, no, it's awesome, it's awesome. Like I said, when I, when I saw that on MTV, I was like, oh man, I've got to ask him about this, because uh, I remember that as being a big part of, uh, of seeing that being a kid. That was just oh, yeah. a lot of, a lot Plan of fun. Planet of the Apes, Speed Racer, uh, yeah. the afternoons they would show on 3.30. Yeah. Yeah. Great stuff. Yeah. So I guess just to back up a little bit, how did you – I mean I know that um, you've done the Dracula book for Boom and now you're doing Planet of the Apes for Boom. And um, you did a, a back matter story for the Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. So how mm-hmm. is it that you got started in this, in this crazy comic world coming from, from the prose novel – um, background. And I, I know you kind of share, I guess, a similar path to, to Chris Roberson, who we talked to a couple weeks ago, um, you know, follow, followed the same path, started on the pro side, moved to the comic side. Oh, yeah. Uh, we're not, not only on the so- same path, I'm just basically following in his footsteps because um, I knew Chris from, I've been writing um, science fiction for a while, and um, we gotten to know each other, know each other at conventions, and he introduced me to Bill Willingham and Paul Cornell and a bunch of comics people. And of course, I was just like sort of filled with jealousy because being a comic book geek from you know birth. Um, so he and basically it was Chris who got me in at Boom. He um, handed them my first novel, Pandemonium, which was which has a lot of things about pulp fiction and Golden Age comics and weird be, people being possessed by. Um, Youngian archetypes who look a lot like pulp characters and superheroes. Um, and he said he basically forced the novel into their hands. Um, and then when they had uh, this opening for Dracula Company of Monsters, they had a story by Kurt Busiak who had the outline. And they were looking for a writer. And uh, they called up and I, I, I took about two seconds to say yes. Um, because one, you get to write your first comic learning from the structure of Kurt Busiek. I mean, you get, you know, he, he was there not only for 
providing the story, but he was there through every issue to talk about, to talk through it. Um, and that was a that was a great experience because um, you know he was providing the structure, but he was also saying, "Look, you have to take over the book. You're the writer. You have to, um, you know, um, make this your own." And so he left plenty of space for me to do. You know, to learn the craft and also add my own stuff in that I was interested in, and that was a very generous thing and, and, a, and a great experience. Um, and so I've been doing Dracula for a while, and at some point, Boom had gotten the license to do Apes, and uh, Meg Gagnon had called me up, the editor in chief, and said, "You know, we've got this license, and we can do anything in the original chronology, uh, the original mythology, not the Tim Burton movie, not the reboot that was coming." Uh, you know, would you be interested? Do you have, well, I think he said, um, do you have any connection to this story? And, and I was thinking about all those, all those misspent hours as a kid watching those apes movies over and over again. I'm like, I have a slight connection. And, um, <laughs> and, and, and the great thing was that he said, you know, we can do anything we want in this chronology, basically. Um, so you've got these five movies to play with and we could set the story anywhere we wanted. And, um, and basically said, do you have any stories you want to tell in this in this world? And it was really, for a licensed property, it was amazingly open. And the, and the Fox people have been really um, – uh, have been going along with this whole uh, mad scheme. Um, so it's been great. Uh, for, for something that could have been really restrictive, it's been really kind of um, – you know, uh, they've been very generous about letting us play in their sandbox. That's good to hear because I know – I imagine with – you know other licensed properties, especially like the Star Wars stuff, and even probably some of the Star Trek stuff. That the the hand of Lucas or the hand of pa- Paramount is probably a lot <laughs> a, a lot weightier um, than 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 it sounds like what you're getting from Fox. So that's well, that's and good. I think it I think it helps that you know their their main concentration is they've got this James Franco movie coming with a different chronology, but um, they wanted to you know if there's energy out there for using the older properties. They were willing to do that, and I and I think that plays into our favor because, um, you know, they um, they it doesn't have to be tied into some future marketing plan. They're not really, you know, I don't think they're planning on going back to these older movies. Um, maybe using some elements from them, but um, you know, so so basically, they gave us a lot of freedom, and that's been great. Was there was there anything in particular that made you choose the particular? time period of the universe that you decided to go with for for this book uh, yeah let's, let's talk about that so there in this weird and you guys know this chronology and you guys were talking about it on your podcast you know there's this weird time travel time possible closed loop time chronology where you start out with the charlton heston movie you get then you go to beneath the planet of the apes then cornelius and zero go back in time and then you start the loop you know, over again back in the 70s, and then it ends with uh, Battle for the Planet of the Apes um, with basically uh, Caesar, still played by Roddy McDowell, playing his own son, um, basically restarts the civilization. And there's this question about, um, you know, whether have they changed history by going back in time or are we always going to end up at that desolate kind of future that Charlton Heston finds 1300 years later. Um, so that was in play. Um, and there's this weird thing that happens at the end of battle where they skip ahead 600 years and they show the lawgiver played by John Houston, 
um, talking to a bunch of children, uh, human children and ape children, saying, isn't it nice we live in this society now where apes and humans live together in harmony? Um, so I decided to open up the, um, the series by basically having, as soon as he finishes saying that, uh, an assassin comes and, and, and shoots him <laughs> with an assault rifle. Um, basically, because, um, you know, utopias aren't really that interesting. Um, so sure. I, was interest, and I was interested in this idea of, in all the movies, there's this argument about, you know, is it the ape's turn? Have the humans already blown it? And shouldn't apes be in charge? You know, can they live together in harmony? Because it kept going back and forth. Even in the movie Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, there's one ending where Caesar sort of declares, I'm, we're going to wipe all the humans out. You know, we'll be conspiring there in smoke and fire, and we're going to come for you. And that tested so horribly um, was such a, a grim reminder of maybe what was actually going on in the 70s with the race riots that they um, tacked on a new happier ending where he said, no, 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 we're going to live together in harmony. Um, and so that tension between, um, you know, utopia and um, I guess it's dystopia, but this, this kind of competition between the species, that's built into the series. And so um, the nice thing about um, having sort of a run at this is I can talk about the sort of things that we're concerned with now, like post 9-11 kind of things about xenophobia. And unfortunately, not really as much has changed. Um, we've still got the same, the same issues um, that they were wrestling with in the 70s. Um, but now we can tell a, a story that's even more about, you know, security versus personal freedom, you know, equality versus stability and, um, and extremism really is what the, what uh, the, first arc is about it's called the long war and it's um it's echoing rumsfeld's phrase about we're in the long war um against extremism and um we're going to see how that plays out in this book that's great do, do you do you see this uh you just mentioned this first arc do you see yourself continuing in this time period going you know with this ongoing title or have you ever thought about maybe you know, doing a certain amount of issues in this time period and then maybe jumping it to another area of apes, you know, chronology. No, that's it. Um, we talked about that. I mean, um, uh, that's come up. We're um, right now we are planning just to stay in this time period because what we'd like to do is we'd like to build a set of characters that people really care about. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, that idea of skipping is really attractive because you can tell stories with a real, you know, a, an epic scope that lasts across time as well as just geography. Um, but right now, for the first year, our plan is let's tell the story of the insurrection, basically, of the humans um, sort of uh, uh, protesting and trying to um, get some of that equality that the lawgiver was promising. And there's, it's really cool in reading it because I think there's a lot there for, you know, anybody that's not really familiar or kind of has a passing interest in in the in the concept of the apes movies and is is just you know picking it up. There's a lot of nods and winks and 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 foreshadowing, I guess, to to the movies to come. Um, you know, we get right. 
you know, we get the, the, the plague or whatever you want to call it of, of humans starting to become mute. You know, it's like it's just starting to, to come about here. We get in issue two, not, not to get too spoilery, but in issue two we get um, to see the, um, the cult members or whatever they are that, that are worshipping the, the bomb. You know, yeah, I love those guys. Yeah, they're like an offshoot, I guess, of, <laughs> of, of the larger cult that we'll get to know in, in Beneath is, is, my, is my gathering um, mm-hmm. from what we've seen for them. Um, and then, and then the the big thing with the gorillas, where um, you know the, the the main gorilla that that is um, um, that Ayala um, hires to basically go find out. Okay, you're gonna you're gonna go find out what happened, and and you know get to the bottom of this whole assassination thing. And uh, the uniform he puts on, of course, is very reminiscent of of what the gorillas use in the in the eight movies, and they they made it sound like. Um, you know, it's an in, very intimidating. That it's not something that they either currently wear or used to wear. But but again, that kind of comes up in 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 the movies. Yeah, I think it's yeah, I think it's yeah, it's sort of like him strapping on you know a, a set of Gestapo tags. You know, uh, where it's got the you know the reader's not going to understand this necessarily, but all the characters understand that when these guys come out in those uniforms, uh, they. That particular, the white troop that nicks this albino gorilla who's charged with finding the killer of the lawgiver, um, when, he puts that stu- when he puts that uniform on and assembles this um, sort of band army troop back together again, um, yeah, every, that's sort of sending a signal to how serious they are. Um, but, you know, you hit on the, 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 the primary problem, I think, of the uh, – or the toughest challenge about writing the script was um, – you can't write this just for the people who have memorized the five movies. Um, so you've got to have those winks and nods in there, but none of them can be required for following um, the story. I mean, you've got to engage people, even if they've never seen a movie. And so that was the whole trick. It's, you know, it's the whole writing for your mom kind of problem, where it's like, okay, mom, sure. I know you haven't, read, you haven't read every single comic I've read or watched all these movies, uh, but can you follow the story? And Are you engaged by these characters? And that's... Um, that was the whole um, tightrope to sort of walk because I think if, if it only makes sense to those people who memorize the movies, you've probably lost the game because there just aren't enough of those people. It's like uh, Jordan who's like, I, I never saw these movies. So. <laughs> <laughs> or they, all, they only saw the Tim Burton movie and so you're like, well, never mind. Oh Lord, yeah. Let's 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 not talk about that as well. Oh, one, one thing I think about a lot with, with Planet of the Apes is I don't think younger fans or non-fans, for that matter, understand like the size of the marketing and stuff. It's almost like Star Wars before Star Wars happened. I mean, you had oh, the yeah. you know the toys, the movies, the TV, the animated, the books, you know, the lunch boxes. <laughs> they were everywhere. Maybe until Star Wars, you know, and that kind of took over the wallets and minds of. Of everybody at that point, but it really was a huge scope. Uh, you know, the the size of the marketing and everything was unbelievable. Yeah, it really was the first to do that. I think I can't think. I was trying to think. Um, somebody else we were talking about this, and I was trying to remember if there had been any other um, push like this. I, I mean, probably uh, somebody who knows their history better would say, you know, Howdy Doody was bigger. Charlie McCarthy may have been bigger because they had even at the radio shows. You know, they had toys they were selling. They had tie-in products. There's probably nothing new under the sun, but certainly in my age, this was the first instance of a, of a massive 
you know, like you said, there were lunch boxes, there were toys that you could get all that stuff. Um, well, and that was and, the first one I remember. And it was so popular that they literally cranked those movies out. I mean, after the first one, they had like a, I don't know, two year break or whatever, but they cranked the movie out a year. I mean, they were just churning these things out because they were so, they were so profitable and they were trying to, you know, ride that wave of popularity that, um, yeah, it was just we'd never seen anything. I mean, the Bond movies maybe come close, but, mm-hmm. but those were a little more, you know, strategic and a little more plotted out. And and you know, f- you know, every two years, I think they did a couple Bond movies where they were about a year apart. But uh, but yeah, that that maybe is. The but it's thing, it's but too bad that the business model then. I mean, the assumption, and I only know this from you know watching the DVD commentary and and that kind of things. But it seems like the the business model was they just assumed that no sequel could continue the money stream more than the than the previous one. So they continually decreased the budget every time, which of course yeah. becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, so there wasn't this idea that, you know what, um, if you've got something great, why don't you double down? Um, that seems to come across later with the summer blockbusters um, until, until they've lost so much money that you cannot continue, and we've probably just seen the last Pirates of the Caribbean for that reason. <laughs> um, I, I guess getting back on onto the to the comic, one of the things when I read it, I mean, yes, it's heavily influenced by the movie, but we in all of the movies except for maybe the you know Battle Four, we didn't really see this, um, and even even in Battle Four, that the, the humans were still. You know, kind of mostly segregated and and kind of really thought down upon, and and at least at this point, um, they've got their own you know cities. They're they're a little bit more in, integrated in society, and and they're a little more widespread. It almost kind of reminds me of um, of like the TV series universe a little bit, where humans were more prevalent and they were able to kind of move around a bit, and and um and and you could see them more, and and that's kind of the environment or time period. Almost it seems like that you're you're going for with the with the comic. Right, and I want to do – I mean I thought it's more interesting to deal with um, humans. You know, I wasn't really interested in having an all-mute cast, so I didn't want to go that far. Um, and I wanted to see – because we're at the sort of crossroads in ape human society, I thought it would be more interesting where things could go either way. Things could get better or things could get worse. And that they had progressed some from from the end of Battle of um, – because there is this promise at the end of that that they left the humans out of corra- the corral and they say, no, no, we'll, you know, we'll respect you. But I still didn't think they were letting them get the vote. Um, it was very clear that, that um, there was still a hierarchy at the end of that movie. So I wanted to sort of play around with this idea of, of where things are at a tension point where it's not – they're not slaves. You know, The humans aren't slaves. Um, and I wanted to make it more complicated than that because I was really – the thing I like about the Apes uh, movies is um, you know, the, the, the political comparison. And so I was interested in making a, a, a political comic where there weren't good guys and bad guys. Um, there were two sides of the political coin and both sides will be doing bad things and both sides will be doing good things and um, not have it be um, all one or all the other. Is it is it difficult? I think about this with the the Clone Wars and and that whole franchise, mm-hmm. where you know, I shouldn't say you, when the reader or the viewer knows eventually where it's headed. 
is it is it what's the trick to writing so that you know it's kind of like what you were just saying you're you're creating tension but ultimately we all know where it's going right is that a challenge you know to to write that way um i call it the oedipus the oedipus rex problem so everybody everybody in that audience uh going to a a, a greek tragedy knows how the story ends but you're still there for the performance, and you're still and, – and I think the secret is to make you care about the individual characters. But that said, we have an out here because it's not clear if we're absolutely on the road to where Charlton Heston shows up because we don't know if the time period has changed. We don't know if it's possible that the apes and humans can come, can come to some kind of reconciliation. Um, so I'm playing with both things. One, I think you you actually get a little more thematic weight by knowing what what what's happening in the future, like with the mute humans, um, like with the fact with the mutants, and you know that they have a bomb out there. There's you get some kind of extra uh, extra mass storytelling mass for free out of that, right. um, knowing that things have bigger consequences than what these characters realize. But on the other hand. You've still got to make it work, you know, at at the story level. So I think readers, like readers, for example, know when Batman dies that he's coming back. So how do you tell a story despite that? Um, and and readers are are really sophisticated about this. They know that if they've got book five in a continuing, um, let's say they're reading Game of Thrones. I mean, they're knowing that there's a lot more books to come. That the whole thing's not going to end in that book. And so um, readers are capable, I think, of uh, playing both sides, you know, both being engaged and sort of knowing where it's going. Sure. So uh, w- one of the other things that, that John and I have really appreciated with the book so far is the art. And we think that, you know, Carlos Magno is doing just a, a fantastic job. And uh, He's great. I, I, I've kind of compared him and I, I always – I always hate to get too far into comparison because I feel like I'm either shorting one side or the other, but it, it's it's definitely meant to be a compliment. But I, I see a little bit of like almost like a Tony Moore in him, you know, like some of his Fear Agent or some of the stuff he's been doing, you know, recently oh, with right. Marvel. You know, kind of you know very detailed, but almost like a kind of a sketchy style in the color, a little bit subdued to really focus in on the on the pencil work and stuff. Um, but it's just been really really good, and I think he's he's done a good job of of. Of capturing the characters. And, oh yeah, and given- and you should see. I mean, I just loved uh, just the uncolored pencils. I mean, I was just sort of blown away. Where I was almost, you know, back to those uh, uh, those black and whites Marvel used to do. You know, it's like, oh wow, this would work really well just as pencils. He does this beautiful crosshatch stuff, so it, it feels like a complete work when he gets done with it. So um, then, then the colors comes in and. Um, just a beautiful job. They, they they really worked a lot with the color palette because, you know, you're trying to get this kind of uh, dystopian mood. You've got this problem that the city is becoming polluted. That maybe they're on the wrong technological track. That they're just following the humans down the road. So you you've got this balancing act between a jungly kind of feel, but also a polluted kind of um, uh, metropolis, and. Carlos, I don't know how he does it, and this was true right from the beginning of his designs. You know, he was – it was almost like a decayed Roman city happening. You know, he, he, would, he would get the, the, the undergrowth and the overgrowth 
happening at the same time. It was almost like the jungle was invading or the city was killing the jungle. You weren't quite sure what's going on, and everything seems to be on, on balance. Uh, it just it was an amazing, some amazing design work on his part. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, you you can't have in in that kind of a book with the dystopia and everything else. You can't have you know bright, cheery colors and harsh reds and you know you know bright blues and stuff like that. It would it would totally kill the mood of the book if you uh, if you did that. So it's I, I appreciate the attention to detail and 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 really kind of capturing the the purpose of the book and not just like I said, just splashing down color and. Right. I imagine sometimes for a colorist that could be hard because you're having that – I imagine to some degree they're having to kind of pull back a little bit um, and not be as aggressive in their style as they may want to be or, or have to be sometimes. Well, you know, I'm new to the business, so I would love to actually sit down with colorists and say, okay, tell me, tell me, what, tell me the thinking that goes into this because I was – sort of um, seeing the results of it. They're saying, here's our first pass of the palette. And I was like, well, that looks pretty good. And they're like, here's our second pass. Here's our third pass. They kept going back. Um, this is under the direction of Ian Brill, the editor, saying, you know, we, um, we hadn't quite nailed the mood yet. And then they got this combination of earth tones and kind of oranges, this kind of, it was almost like a little apocalyptic feel. And then on top of Carlos's, uh, you know, uh, pencils and inks, it, it just... Yeah, I was just I was just blown away. I was just so happy with the way the art matches uh, the story. And he he draws he his faces and figures are so beautiful, both making the apes expressive and the humans. Um, it could have been just one or the other, you know. Um, I don't know if you guys ever see the 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 newspaper comic Mark Trail. You, you ever see the no. Mark Trail comic? It's no, like been going on since like 1945, and and it's always about this guy who's a ranger, and always in the sometimes in like for, he's in the forest, and the animals always have a lot more expression than any of the humans. You know, it's like it's a comic strip. It's, it's almost like animal porn. You know, they just put the raccoon up the front. It's like, wow, that's a beautifully drawn raccoon, and Mark Trail looks like an idiot behind them. So you could have had you could have had that problem where it's like, wow, the apes are beautiful, but the you know the uh, humans look like stick figures. But no, they're they're beautiful. What uh, are you enjoying? Any comics right now? Any different series or writers or anything that's kind of uh, inspiring you now or? Oh like. yeah, you know I'm on. Um, I've been on like a, a sampling craze. Um, I basically I'm so easy to get money out of now because I go into my comic book shop. I'm like, okay guys, what should I be reading now? And they just, you know, they just start handing me stuff. So like, well, I really you had Chris Robertson on. I really love, um, you know, I Zombie, which has such a beautiful tone because it's sort of a hangout book. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's like it's it's. Um, it doesn't feel like a roller coaster. It doesn't feel like one of those thrill ride books. It feels like one of those books where you just like to come back to every you know every month and sort of hang out with. Um, I, I've been enjoying uh, Unwritten. Let me see. Oh, I just you know I picked up uh, The Intrepids, which was a, a wild book. Uh, just picked that up this week. You know what else I've been enjoying? You know, like uh, like Chris said on your podcast. You know, I'm a, I'm a regular Fables reader. Now I'm going blank. I'm trying to think. What's in the other room? All my comics are in the other room right now. <laughs> are you a Walking <laughs> Dead? Are you a Walking <laughs> yeah. Dead fan? I'm sorry. Say that again. I, are you a Walking Dead fan? That seems to be a common. Uh, I think everybody right now is a Walking Dead fan. But okay, here's my confession. So my novel coming out in June is basically an anti-zombie novel, zombie novel. And during the year I was writing it, I I didn't watch or read. Uh, any zombie fiction, TV shows, movies, because I was afraid of ripping anybody off accidentally. Sure. Right? 
Sure. So, um, so, so in the meanwhile, you know, Walking Dead just sort of takes off. Everyone's talking about it. I'm like, I can't participate in this conversation. Now that I'm done with the book, I have to go catch up. <laughs> but, I hear, but I hear it's wonderful both for the TV show and the books. So. And speaking of that book, I, I, I kind of I saw on your website you've got um, you know promo up and you've got um, the first chapter up and it's called Raising Stony Mayhall. And uh, it, it's, it's got the most interesting zombie premise I think I've ever seen. You know, typical zombie stuff. And, and we actually do – one of the other podcasts we do is called The Walking Dead TV Podcast, which it right. kind of focuses on the TV show. And, and we do talk about the book to some degree, but it's mostly a show. And we're all big fans of the show, big fans of the book. But um, you know, zombie stuff typically focuses on the zombie side of things. And, and I, I wonder if you, if you could just kind of educate everyone as to the premise behind uh, Raising Stony Mayhall and, and uh, what it's all about. Yeah, it's, um, so it's, uh, it sort of says, okay, Romero's 1968 uh, Night of the Living Dead. Uh, the film actually happened, but it was a documentary. And, so, and, and just like at the end of that movie, they managed to wipe off wipe out all the zombies and everybody lived happily ever ever after but um uh an, a living dead baby gets found beside the road in iowa in the middle of a storm and they and uh, the family who picked him up knows that he'll be destroyed um he'll be destroyed by the the authorities if they if they don't take care of them uh take care of him and so they decide to hide him and inexplicably, he starts to grow. And it's basically the life story of a kid who grows up thinking he's the last, the last of the zombies. But then he finally, in his adolescence, he meets his people. He finds the underground uh, zombie movement where it turns out that the, the fever for, for eating people lasts only about 48 hours. And then they come to their senses. But but when they come to the senses, they're being hunted by the government and everybody else, so they all go underground. And so meanwhile, this underground has arguments about whether they should really use the Z word or not or whether that's offensive. Um, they have to decide whether they're going to go public or not um, or whether they'll just be hunted down. And there's a radical group who says, you know what we ought to do? we got, we got to do the big bite. The big bite will be like this geographically distributed mass attack where we bite so many people so fast that they can't stop the zombie apocalypse, and then uh, then we'll be okay. And um, and Stony, who's been you know raised by humans, uh, is sort of looked upon by some of the zombies as the next as the zombie messiah. So he's um, so it's basically his life story and um, preparing for the next uh, zombie apocalypse. Very cool. That's almost like a Twitter flash mob for zombies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, all right, everybody, start go to the mall and start biting now. Uh, the it, mall would be the first place they check. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're already there, judging by my mall. <laughs> yeah, so we're um, hoping. I mean, Publishers Weekly just made it their pick of the week this week, so we're. Uh, I'm excited, and we'll hopefully uh, people will dig this. Um, I'm hoping it's not one of those, you know, it's like, it's a, it's kind of a, because it's kind of an anti-zombie novel, um, we may just annoy the people who like zombie novels, and um, and people who don't like zombie novels, you know, won't read it. So, hopefully, hopefully it won't be like, you know, marketing poison. We'll see, we'll see what happens. I'll tell you that one thing we've learned from uh, doing the Walking Dead podcast is the zombie fans are, they're rough. You know, there'll be no jogging zombies. There'll be no zombies that can jiggle doorknobs. There'll be no climbing zombies. You know, they're very strict about their zombies. 
Well, there is. Yeah, there's a. Well, trust me, man. The the apes people are pretty strict too. So uh, you can't have apes that look too much like the Tim Burton apes or do things that look a little too apey. People are policing that as well. Um, but yeah, I know there's this whole religion, uh, religious argument. You know, the slow slow zombies versus fast zombies. Um, and so yeah, I may be annoying those core people by having um, zombies who are actually self reflective and um, wondering what the hell's going on. <laughs> I, I, I for one, am, am the type that appreciate variety because to me, if you're just telling the same story over and over again and just changing up the you know the plot lines a little bit or changing a couple of the characters or whatnot, to me that just gets stale. So you know things things like you're doing. Um, with raising Stony Mayhall are just very intriguing to me. I mean, the fact that a zombie actually is aging and getting older—it's just—it's not something you typically think about because they, you know, they usually have a you know hole through their midsection or you know, <laughs> an arm missing or something. So I just thought that was kind of a, a unique take um, on on the genre for sure. Yeah, I, the whole goal was to do an anti-zombie novel so that by the end, all the humans are chasing the zombies and you're you're rooting for the zombies, the poor oppressed zombie guys. So. <laughs> No one. I'm, one thing I'm curious about, and I, and I asked Chris this as well, is is your writing process. And Chris, when we talked to him, he said, you know, that he he always has thought in the comic mode because that's just you know from a little kid that's all he wanted to do. For your writing process, going from prose and now going to the comic side, how have you adapted or changed your process, or how how easy or more difficult is it to go to comics after after being in prose for so long? Uh, well, yeah, I, and, and Chris warned me when, when, when I started, he's like, don't make that novel writer's mistake where they just fill up the entire page, you know, full of boxes of text. Um, so that was the number one thing to watch out for. And it, but it did help that I was a comic book geek from, from the beginning. And it was, you know, it was the thing that, um, it was how I learned how to read. I mean, that was my first reading experience. I remember is being read, uh, a Spider-Man comic on my dad's lap. And I thought in my memory, it's always, it's, it's always, uh, you know, um, the first, uh, uh, what's, what's, uh, what's Spider-Man's first astonishing tales. Number 15. Anyways, uh, amazing yes. fantasy, amazing, fantasy. amazing fantasy. Th- um, thank you. And, uh, because th- they're telling the origin story and in my head, we own the original, you know, Spider-Man. And <laughs> it was probably, it was, it had to be a reprint, but in my head I had it. Um, yeah, so the process for me was a little different because unlike Chris, who, who sort of wanted to do comics first and then do prose, um, I always wanted to write novels, um, and I didn't think it would ever be possible for me to write, uh, to write comics. I never thought I'd be able to break in, um, so I, I wrote novels. And I like, I like working at the sentence level. I like that a lot. And I like the total sort of creative freedom, too. I mean, you can um, – because in science fiction, the stakes are so low, the money's low enough that you can basically do anything you want. You know, you don't even have to worry about, um, you know, offending um, – well, like, you know, if I have Captain America in, in my book, in Pandemonium, I can kill him off. Um, <laughs> and they probably wouldn't let me do that without, you know – uh, a lot of uh, a lot of permission from Tom Brevoort. Um, so for yeah, so for me the the the, the real trick was um, learning the structure of comics. It's a tight, it's a really tight form, and um, I think it's actually really helped my dialogue writing because you just do not have space, and it's a compressed form. Um, so the hardest thing for me was 
to figure out um, how to move through, how to move the pacing quickly. So basically, you see in Planet of the Apes one, me trying using every trick I've learned so far um, in in pushing. Uh, establishing the world as fast as possible and getting the main conflict out in front of the readers as fast as possible uh, without any jamming around um, or wasting any words. It's, it's really more of a haiku form than anything else. Um, and that's, that, that's been great. And it's also great to be able to say, uh, here's a two-page spread of the city. Uh, Carlos, go, go knock yourself out. <laughs> and, then, and he has to take two days to go make that. And I've just written one sentence. That's kind of nice. Yeah, I I think personally it's a good balance because I think you know on the podcast we talk about from time to time comics that we literally sit down and and we're done reading it within five minutes because it's a bunch of you know double page splashes, single page splashes. There's you know maybe a not a thought balloon but a thought box that kind of tells you what's going on and you're done. So the f- the fact that there's actual meat to this story and that there's actually something to read personally I, f- I feel like you know. You're you're getting you know kind of your money's worth you know you're sitting down and actually having you know full stories uh, to read as opposed to you know just kind of banging out you know the art side of it. Right, and what I hope people get, and this is, um, and, and this I've tried really hard to do in these, fir- especially in this first arc for apes, is there's there's references to lots of background material that's not explained. Um, but that I've worked out in the in the story Bible, and so I'm hoping that even if um, people don't understand every reference that's happening right now, you get the feeling that there's weight and that there's stuff coming. And um, the trick is to build up so that by the time you arrive, let's say at the end of the year one, um, you've paid off all these things that you've um, all these. Um, clues and all these references that you've dropped, you, you get the idea um, that the whole story sort of comes together. You know? And it's, a, it's an interesting form because it's episodic in that you have to make each issue work for every new person who's coming in even. Um, but you also have this larger story to, to pull off. And um, that's what I most enjoyed switching from um, novels to comics is learning a new structure and a new way of telling stories. Um, it's, it's been, um, yeah, it's just, it's just a, it's just a lot of fun and it's just fun learning something that I'm, um, that's new that I'm bad at, you know? So, so, so the other, the other book that you're writing for boom is Dracula company of monsters. And that's the one we talked about earlier with Kurt, Kurt Busiek. So mm-hmm. issue, it looks like issue nine is out. There's a couple trades out. Is that, is that still moving forward? That's, yeah, we're going to end, we're going to end this at, uh, number 12. Um, and Kurt's outline was always for an entire year. And what we did was we sort of said, look, we're going we're gonna to leave um, plot things open that if Boom decides to go past 12, we can do that. Um, and in fact, I, I gave them my outline for the next year <laughs> just in case. Like, you know, if, you're, if we're going forward, here's what I would do in year two. Um, <laughs> but the basic, the three-act structure that Kurt laid out pays off completely in 12. So you get, um, it, you know, it follows basically this character, Evan, who's the point of view character, as he's sort of caught between Dracula and his uncle who runs a corporation, and the corporation has raised Dracula. Never really a good idea, but they do it. And 
And Evan is sort of this wishy-washy guy. And what you really have over the course of 12 issues is him growing up and sort of becoming his own person. So the character, it's, it's really... It really was a novelistic structure from the beginning and that we were going to show a complete character arc. A lot of time in comics, you've got to keep people basically static because they can't grow past the story. They can't become somebody completely different. Um, but Evan does. Um, by the end of this story, Evan's not going to be able to – would not be able to participate in the same way he did in the um, early parts of the story. Cool, cool. Well, I have, I have one more question. And and if John doesn't have anything else, and then I guess we can we can wrap up and and, cool. and let you. Do, do you have any everything else, John? No, th- this is uh, you've both done a fantastic job. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is this is probably well over your your time budget, so I appreciate we, it. <laughs> we no, it's it's perfect. We we actually um, we're pretty open. We just we just are always overly concerned that that we're stretching folks beyond uh, the timeline they have allotted because everybody's usually so busy. So we, we definitely have that flexibility. But growing up in, in, in Chicago, um, I, I did like, like you did. And John and I are both big baseball guys. So, so be- before we let you go. Don't even fan, ask, I- man. <laughs> like if, you're, if you're a Sox fan, I can't talk to you. Just so we, just we're clear on that. We're, 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 we're on a good page. <laughs> All right. I've, and see, I'm living in Pennsylvania right now, and it's so funny because I have raised my children to be Cubs fans. Good which for is you, like, sir. It's like being born into a religion of a dead god. You know, it's like yes. um, you know you're doomed, but you have to be a fan anyways. And in fact, I uh, this past Memorial Day weekend, um, my wife and daughter went to Chicago. I had to stay home, and they managed to see the Cubs-Pirates game. Uh, unfortunately, the Cubs got crushed. Yeah, I was going to uh, say that uh, probably not the best uh, series to go see. <laughs> <laughs> no, they, they just got just got crushed. But you know, any day where it's sunny in Wrigley Field, I tell yeah. you, man, I, uh, I I just I just love going to see the Cubs. Absolutely. So I guess with that, what uh, where can folks find you? Um, is there anything else you want to promote coming up? You know, anything else you want you want to tell the audience about? No, just come by. I mean, I'm at DarylGregory.com. You can find me on Twitter, Daryl Writer Guy. Um, and uh, you can find me at any bar at any convention. Um, so come by if you guys are at uh, – if you guys are at in San Diego at Comic-Con, I'll be at uh, New York Comic-Con. Uh, we we will be me. at New York Comic-Con. Yeah, we'll definitely oh, be good. at that one. So I'll be uh, – I'll be trying to outdrink Chris Robertson, which will be uh, impossible. But I, I will make my attempt at um, at both those conventions. So yeah, it'd be great to see you guys in New York. Put it yeah, we'll we'll definitely look you up for sure. Absolutely. All right. Well, again, we really appreciate your time. We wish you continued success with definitely with Planet of the Apes. We know we'll be we'll be uh, reading and watching with very much anticipation as it as it moves forward. And um, Keep be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and very much, and like I said, with your with your you know pro stuff too. Um, I think uh, when do you, do you have a, is there a date? It just says June on your website for raising Stony Mayhaw. Is there? Oh, is there I, a, I actually now have a final date. So it's June twenty eighth is when um, that book comes out, and it's uh, you can pre order now. But it's uh, it'll be in stores. Well, the way the bookstores are running these days, who knows if it'll be in any stores? Uh, if, <laughs> if Barnes and Noble and Borders are both still operational by June twenty eighth, that's where you can find them. And hey, I'll uh, we'll check in when the new Apes movie comes out and see what you thought. If that sounds okay, yeah, that'd be great. Though we'll see if uh, 
if Fox will let me opine on their movie. Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks a lot, Daryl. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. Have a good night. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Okay. Thanks again to Mr. Gregory for doing that interview with us. That was a lot of fun. Uh, so that's it for this week's show, episode 144. You can leave us a voicemail at 516-468-7912, just like the voicemails you heard at the beginning of the show. You can send us an email, comments at legionofdudes.com. Check out Half Hour Wasted on Mondays. And, of course, check out walkingdeadtv.com for our coverage of Walking Dead, the TV show, and the comic. You can also subscribe to the Facebook groups for LOD, HHW, and Walking Dead. And don't forget, follow us on Twitter, at LOD Tweet, and the brand new, at HHWLOD underscore network. And uh, until next time, have a good week. Good night. Goodbye.